<sighs> Say, ever think about your first time? <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember my first time. My baby does the hanky pain. Ow. 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 Okay, it's in. <laughs> that was a good screw. We need 30 more screws to make a birdhouse or you fail wood shop. Keep going. Okay. Ow. Ow. Stop Ow. narrating for the wood. I still got the blisters. What about you? You remember the first time you got to third base? Oh, yeah! My baby does the hanky pain. You're out! What? What are you, blind? Are you? You ran from home to third. Yep. Sure remember the first time I went banging. My baby does the hanky pain. Trick or treat! It's November! Go home! You were out! Come on, Ump! How about you? You remember the first time you made Whoopi? Oh, yeah! My baby does the hanky pain. These donuts found the floor, they're half off. Whoopi! 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 <laughs> How about you? When was the first time you rocked and rolled? <laughs> My baby does the hanky panky. My baby does the hanky panky. My baby does the hanky panky. Da 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 da. Tell me about the first time you ever laid pipe. Oh, oh, oh! My baby does the hanky panky. All right, miss, your pipe's all laid. It was a tight squeeze, but I fit it all in. Oof! Well, how should I pay you? I could write you a check. Hmm, I've never taken a check before. Well, all right. Who should I make it out to? I've never been asked that before. You make it out to me, Ernest Innuendo. All right, to Ernest Innuendo for a job well done. My pipes! Oh, no, I'm slipping. I've slumped. I'm so sorry. It's my first time laying pipe. How can I help? CPR. I've never done that before, but I'll try. My ribs! Oh god, I've never broken anyone's ribs before! I'm gonna report you to the Better Business Bureau! You'll never let pop again! Huh, I've never murdered before. Do your worst! That was it. I'm dead. I gotta get rid of the evidence. My fingerprints are all over these ribs. Uh, 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 matches! I've never lit a match before. Well, it was the first time for everything. I gotta get out of here. I'll take that old Biddy's car! I've never driven a car before, much less a stolen one from a dead woman whose pipes I just laid. Well, here goes nothing. I can't believe what I did. I killed her! Well, there's no going back from here. I've crossed the line. I'll never be the same man I was before. Every time I smell a campfire, I'll think about tonight. I gotta snap out of it. My baby does the hanky-panky. And that was the first time I heard hanky-panky. Put on your happy, happy face. face. Gray skies are gonna open up. Oh and there's God, gonna you know be the acid rain. <laughs> you know the words to that. Gray skies are gonna clear up. Put on a happy face. <laughs> you don't sing that every morning? I always start with put on a happy face and then it doesn't work and I just give up. I put on a happy face and it turns out it's someone else's face. <laughs> I'm a monster. <laughs> Hi. Hello. Oh, wow. Hi. Welcome Hi. to Ellie Meekly. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. <laughs>
<laughs> gulp, 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 Sonny. I like my coffee like I like my women. Nice. In styrofoam? <laughs> I like my women like I like my coffee. Nice to me. I like my women like I like my coffee. My mother made them. <laughs> like my sister. Ambush. Ambush podcast. That you didn't uh, know this. Ambush podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my God. Welcome to episode so 38, 38 of LA Meekly, the Ambush podcast. We're going to get you. The Rogue podcast. Uh, we went rogue. And Before Trump. somehow we're more Trump. <laughs> this is the conservative version of LA Meekly. Global warming's dead. <laughs> Killed it. With my, I built a wall protecting us from global warming. I used my tiny hands to build a giant wall. <laughs> I hope your January was nice. We hope you liked our field trip episode. We oh, had a, yeah, that happened. We uh, hope you enjoyed how cold we made it yeah. in the month of January. We no thought, you thought it was nice. Supposed drought. I mean, the drought's not supposed to, but supposedly we're out of it. That's what I'm trying to say. Supposedly we're out of drought. Yeah, so these <laughs> alter realities that Greg's living in. It uh, hasn't even been that hot. What's, he, what's everyone talking about? How come when I turn on the faucet, water comes out? <laughs> Hmm? Drought? I think Drought? not. I think not. Let me tell you, the liberals are taking the water. You're even doing the Trump hand. I, I, I can't help it. Oh no, he's doing the other Trump hand with his other hand, which is a hile. <laughs> Welcome to February, everybody. It's the love month. The birth month of the love guru. <laughs> and uh, the official sailing month of the love boat. <laughs> Welcome to love month. <laughs> Happy love month, everybody. I'm not in love and nobody cares about me. <laughs> I hate myself and I want to die. <laughs> Somebody want to hear? <laughs> Happy February. <laughs> February is also Black History Month. Happy Black History Month. The month of love. <laughs> this month we'll be talking about groundbreaking black people that were able to move past a lot of racial barriers to become the first of something in the mm-hmm. city. That city that we're researching. The city. The she ci- loves me. The city she loves me. The city of angels. I was just the other day thinking about, and not to many people know this, before we started the podcast, you put a short film out, <laughs> part of the LA, like an LA <laughs> short film festival about LA, and 90% of the other films were shots of the Hollywood sign yeah. and then someone pushing like a lotus cart and then City of Dreams where everyone comes city. to to make it. City of Dreams with the side of mayonnaise. <laughs> city of Dreams on a cob. She loves me. One even had an animation of a woman reaching down from the skies. Mm-hmm, Lady Los right. Angeles. Lady Los Angeles reaching down. Giving him an Oscar or whatever. Because that's all this city's good for, isn't it? We get more. We speak Spanish and Chinese and we win Oscars. That's what <laughs> LA's about. You know what language I speak? I speak Oscar acceptance speech. <laughs> that's the language I speak fluently. I'd like to thank... Oh, my time's up. I gotta go. I gotta go. Marlon Randall's getting me off stage. I gotta go. <laughs> Kanye West, for some reason, is here. <laughs> I'm forgetting all the stuff that I practiced before because Kanye West says I don't deserve this. <laughs> Which, uh, uh, admittedly, I don't. <laughs> well, I think that's been enough banter. I hope so. Uh, God, so I hope this is over now and I can just I'll read off this paper I prepared. <laughs> We're going to be giving you the stories of what, six, seven, S- seven it is? Seven, yeah. I have two really short ones I'll put up front because I just couldn't find too much on them. But, I, you know, I'm very interested in both of these men. Mm, I, I bet you are. There's just something about him. Yeah, Greg's had an awakening. Have you felt it? <laughs> <laughs> have you felt it because he won't get it off? Because <laughs> he keeps putting it in my bed at night. <laughs> Who gave you the key? <laughs> I have a doggy door. You're not a doggy. So, okay. According to a book titled Blacks in Gold Rush, California, the only concentration of African-Americans in California was in Los Angeles. And of this decade, the 1850s, the best known of these men was Peter Biggs. Mr. They're, Biggs. Who do you think you are? <laughs> Mr. Biggs. Tough. <laughs> I hear Mr. Biggs tough. Tough. Who does he think he is? Mr. Biggs tough? Going around breaking all these hearts. <laughs> There's some speculation that myself, I can't confirm or deny. But they say that Peter Biggs may have been the first African-American to live in Los Angeles, with his mm. name appearing as early as 1847. Yeah, I mean, that is tricky, again, using the term African-American, because exactly. there were people of African descent who came originally. That's right, yeah. Not originally, but originally from Mexico there to was, Los Angeles. I was really going to say, yeah, there was black people who were 
were coming from Mexico or they came from Spain. Yeah, yeah it's tricky. I'm going to try to be as um, correct offensive, as, offensive uh, yeah. as possible. I'm going to try to be as correct as possible. So he might have been one of the first guys here. His name appears as early as 1847. There said, for sure by the time the census was taken in 1850, he was one of the 12 black settlers listed in Los Angeles, along with others such as Biddy Mason, who we mentioned mm-hmm. in the jazz episode. She yeah. was the first black person to own She's gonna land. She's going to come up in one of my stories okay, later. In another publication. So <laughs> don't Ladies say her name. Mine. Don't say her name again, please. <laughs> I'm taking her to dance. And <laughs> another publication titled Annals of California from the Arrival of the First White Men to the Civil War Era. It says that Peter Biggs was the first English-speaking black person in Los Angeles because a lot of them came from Mexico, yeah. which might have been technically Spain at the time. Peter Biggs' story starts in Missouri, where he was a slave. In 1850, census lists his age as 35 and his birthplace is Virginia. He was sold to either an officer or a captain named A.J. Smith in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, during the Mexican War. The man who bought Biggs eventually freed him upon arrival in Los Angeles. Now, Biggs was a local character and they had a nickname for him. Californios called him Don Pedro and the Americans' nickname for him was incredibly racist. It was so racist when I copied into Microsoft Word it registered as a hate crime. Let's just say they called him Slur Word Pete. <laughs> the paperclip popped out and just shook his head. <laughs> shook his head. He had a sign he was holding against me. Slur- hate does not make America great. <laughs> Greg. Thanks, Clippy. Cook. Um, so let's just say they called him Slur Word Pete. In the readings of Pete, says it so freely. It's just like, hey, they called him this. I'm like, stop that. Cut that out. If Mark Twain can say it. I'm going to smack that Huckleberry Finn right in the mouth next time he wants to say that. Okay? Smack him in the mouth. I would knock the teeth out, but they're long gone. <laughs> All that kid's got to do is eat some gum and out. Stupid hillbilly. Fence painting bumpkin. <laughs> I think you're thinking of Tom Sawyer. He tricked him into painting his fence. They tripped some room. Some country. Yeah, Huckleberry Finn. Huck Finn. Cuck, Cuck, Tom Sawyer. Uh, what do you mean? Cuck Finn? Huckleberry <laughs> Finn. That's what I call the city boys. Uh, Mr. Biggs saw that Los Angeles had a lot of surly looking gruffs walking around and noticed that the town had no real saloon to get a trim, to get their ears lower. So it opened up the city's it's first... Ears lowered. Is that an expression for getting a haircut? Yeah. Why never... would your ears be lowered? Is oh, there... because it was... Barbers were also dentists and they figured they might, <laughs> they might as well. They were also surgeons. They were also ear doctors. I mean, everybody was Frankenstein back in the day, right? <laughs> everybody before 1950 was Frankenstein. He's just the only one they talked about. Like, there were a bunch of people named Jesus back then. He's just the one they talk about. <laughs> Pete Biggs opened up the city's first barber shop, the New Orleans Shaving Saloon, which is just about as confusing as Milwaukee beer from LA, California. <laughs> he was also the city's first barber and boot black and because because he spoke English, the only... That's someone who shines shoes, I'm assuming? Yeah, I, ass- I also assume the same thing, yeah. The only English-speaking barber in Los Angeles. And because of that... What were the other languages? Per- Spanish, I would want to say. Peruvian? <laughs> Peruvian. I would have assumed Spanish. There yeah, was only... So. They spoke prospector. See, that's the thing. I don't know if he was the only English-speaking barber or the only English-speaking black man here. I read e- both. Either, yeah, either way makes sense. I read things and I'm like, that can't be true. I don't know how to confirm... A black barber? <laughs> because he was the only English-speaking barber in town. He was the only barbershop that could accommodate Americans. He was very popular because of this. I read some of that he knew virtually every resident in Los Angeles because there was like six. He rented... Sp- <laughs> and only three of them had hair. <laughs> he rented space at the Bella Union Hotel on Main Street near Temple, which is now where the Fletcher Bowdrin Square is. It used to be like a big mall type situation. It was just like a there was a saloon across from there was just like the city plaza mall. Shut up. It was a, a Westfield. <laughs> he charged fifty cents for shaving and seventy five cents for a haircut. What am I, a millionaire? <laughs> shaving a haircut, two bit. <laughs> new Orleans Shaving Saloon was a one chair barbershop, which is one of my favorite phrases, and he only served <laughs> men. Trump's New America. He marries a Mexican woman named Dolores Valenzuela and had a daughter, Juana Margarita, which <laughs> it might be a song. That must have been a prank call. <laughs> You want you want a what? <laughs> and during the 1860s, I kept reading this, but I don't really necessarily know what it means. He had a monopoly on the barber business in LA, which probably means he had like he was a the couple. only one. Yeah, he was yeah. the only person who owned scissors. 
I keep welding two knives together and I keep wounding everybody and they get infected and they die. A French man, a f- French man, a Frenchman moved into town named Felix Seigneur, who was barber by trade and Pete was embarrassed because his skill wasn't that great. So he began reducing his prices to 12 cents a shaving, 25 cents for hair cutting. Here's a funny story about Felix Seigneur, the other barber in town. He led 300 vigilantes to a jailhouse, overpowered a sheriff and deputies, dragged a man out named Lachey. It's another Frenchman. They took him to the temple on High Street and they hung him. Mm-hmm. A barber did this. Mm-hmm. And to his credit, Lachey. Sweeney Todd. Yeah, he had shot a man in the field over a water dispute, and this was the pre-LAPD vigilante mob rule days, but still. Barbers were king. <laughs> Anyways, Pete Briggs started a family and was a businessman in early Los Angeles, and I can't seem to find more on him after this point. First barber in LA. All right. I like him. Yeah. The second gentleman I'm going to talk about. I wanted to develop so much more, and I, I know there's got to be more out there. Even the people who are doing research are trying to find more information <laughs> and trying to confirm the things I'm about to tell you. Samuel Marlowe. Sometimes with an E at the end of Marlowe, sometimes with no E. Samuel Marlowe was the first black private investigator licensed west of the mississippi river that's a phrase that's going to come up a lot in this episode it was like we were the only thing west of the mississippi (laughs) it was this and then it was like los angeles used to be huge (laughs) and the americans came over remember the alamo (laughs) alan no (laughs) dad jokes dad Dad jokes dad jokes jokes. i mean my dad was daniel boone so so I can make that joke. Marlowe was born in August of 1890 in Montego Bay, Jamaica. He served in Britain's Egyptian Expeditionary Force, a World War fighting brigade that guarded the Suez Canal. After the war, Marlowe immigrated to the U.S., settling in Los Angeles. When he got here, he lived near West Adams and 7th and Jefferson Boulevard, and he had a lot of different jobs. He was a real estate insurance agent as well as a handyman. He worked construction. He worked for a mortgage company. Marlowe also had a bit role in the 1933 film. Am I reading this wrong? King Kong? He was a really. Who he, was he? He was a warrior in the scene uh, that has mm-hmm. Faye Ray. Of course. Yeah, and where she gets captured by the, mm, one the, the natives. Uh, one of the offensive characters. Yeah, that's... You, oh, you remember him. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember him. See, I can't find too much information about this. They say that he helped found the... kept calling it the Old Black Actors Screen Guild, but it might just be the Black Actors Screen Guild, or it might just be SAG, the Screen Actor Guild. <laughs> it also said he helped form the Universal Negro Improvement Association under Marcus Garvey's guide, but I can't find his name anywhere in that hmm. stuff. They're headquartered at the Hollywood Professional Building from 1938 to 56. There isn't much known about Marlowe other than the official documents like birth certificates and the job ads he put out. But it is known that he had a love for Black Mask magazine, which put out really great pulp stories. It's where Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler got their start and a lot of other really great writers. I don't know at which point he decided to give the work of a private investigator a chance. Here's the ad which he put out in the California Eagle in July of 1927. California Eagle, which is the newspaper from Central Avenue. And that's uh, Colorado Bass, Bass. Yeah, was in charge of. Okay, 1927, July 1st, California Eagle. SB Marlowe Detective Agency. The SB the Marlowe Detective Agency of this city throws light on the crime wave by sending out a letter to the lawyers of California which states there is no job too large and none too small for us to handle robberies, murders, arson, embezzlement kidnapping, domestic and divorce and evidences undercover work we have separate departments for each line of work male and female trained operators to handle all cases that may arise a trial is what we ask and we know that your future work will be given to us consultation free all work confidential according to Louise Ransel the Hollywood executive Marlowe corresponded frequently with two of my favorite and everyone's favorite writers like I said Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler he would write them he would read their stories in black mass magazine he would send them letters and i think from what they understand he was sending them suggestions and corrections about real life details so they are sort of inferring that he has influenced sam spade mm. of the maltese falcon which might be partly based on sam marlowe as is chandler's go-to fictional pi philip marlowe so they just like split his name like you get the first name <laughs> i don't know if they had that meeting <laughs> if you remember raymond chandler's farewell my lovely opens on central avenue the mm. african-american nightclub strip in south la where marlowe may have been hired to keep an eye on Hollywood actors for some fun. Ransom believes Marlowe worked for Hollywood studios throughout the 30s through the 50s. The gumshoe, Samuel Marlowe, died 
in July of 1991 at the age of 100. 1991? Yeah. We were alive at the... Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm really young. <laughs> I was born in 2009. <laughs> I'm very precocious. There has to be more Change my diaper. <laughs> I seriously got to burp me if I want to keep talking. <laughs> I'm precocious in some ways, others not so much. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot more out there, but as far as his time as a private investigator, I, there's just not much. We'll find out when the CW puts out the show that they're working on right now based on Sam Marlowe. So that's what I got in Sam Marlowe and Pete Briggs. They're not Pete really Briggs. doing that, are they? Yeah. They're working on a show well, based on Sam Marlowe? Well, it's in the works. That's what, I, that's what I keep reading. It's in really? the works, yeah. Huh. I'll watch that show. i would watch the S word out of that. No. S word. It'll the come out of my body. That's how much I'm watching. <laughs> I'll watch the spaghetti out I'll, of it. I'll watch the seizure out of this. <laughs> well, there's a two little rapid fires uh, yeah. to get you started. Are you ready for the real? Oh, God. The entree? Oh, well, boy. the first entree because this is a, a pig's feast. <laughs> <laughs> Empty your bowels. <laughs> Evacuate your bowels. <laughs> Here comes information. We all know Los Angeles is the shining city of tubular cowabunga. Oh, my God. But there was a time when everything wasn't quite so cowabunga. <laughs> Racism. That's not cowabunga at all. <laughs> it's more than just a recreational hobby of the alt-right. <laughs> Rec free. Did you know that this stuff goes way back? No. There's been racism forever. It's just on November 8th or whenever that was. <laughs> we like to think that a place like LA in the 1900s wasn't racist like the other LA of the 1900s, <laughs> Louisiana. But oh, Greg, it was. I could only imagine. <laughs> it was a tough place unless you were a barber. The, the only barber. You, you had to be nice to him. He was the only barber. You want to walk around with a bowl cut? You better be nice, <laughs> be nice to, to the barber. Be nice to the barber. <laughs> be nice to the barber. <laughs> My favorite Twilight Zone. <laughs> so it was pretty racist, but they were trying. In the 1890s, California passed laws guaranteeing beach access to people of all races, but these laws were quickly ignored. Mm, boy. Jim Crow was still felt even in a place like L.A., so the local African-American population never got that much access to water <laughs> like water fountains swimming pools and the beach and as beachfront property came more and more to represent the idea of luxury in Los Angeles and prices for this sort of land started going up the limited plots of beachfront property owned by African Americans was uh, boy did those white people want it so <laughs> they found any reason they could to kick them out and then make it so that black people were not allowed to buy beachfront property Jeez. once they got them out but there was an exception in 1912 Manhattan Beach was incorporated into the the city yay, of Los Angeles. Beach. Mm, don't yay too much. Oh, one Manhattan of the cities. One of, oh. You're not in New York. <laughs> you got the beaches way. with all the oil rigs. Oh, man. <laughs> one of the founders of Manhattan Beach was a man named Gregory H. Peck. I mean, not Gregory Peck, George H. Peck. Oh I my God. The, the, you couldn't imagine the face I just made of like joy and confusion. Uh, actor Gregory Peck. <laughs> actor Gregory Peck, but not that actor Gregory Peck. <laughs> he was in a movie called The Omen, not that omen. <laughs> he had uh, some Peckish uh, inclinations. You might be tempted to call him George H. Peckerwood, but he actually seemed like a nice... Dad jokes. Uh, but dad jokes. You know, racist dad jokes. <laughs> so my dad jokes. <laughs> Kidding. He was, uh, it was a nice, uh, he was a nice guy. Man. <laughs> people liked him. He would walk around the boardwalk in Manhattan Beach and just like throw handfuls of coins to kids that oh, would pass cool. by. Yeah, they kind of mean, but kind of cool. It hurt them. <laughs> kind of a fat cat <laughs> thing to do. Boiled coins so that it would Take leave a mark. Take this peasant and live another day. <laughs> or else my name isn't Gregory Peck. <laughs> 
<laughs> it was either because white people just weren't buying in that area or because of a case of good heart disease. Peck put a clause into the city's deed that two blocks of beachfront land were to be set aside for African Americans to buy in Manhattan Beach. That land was centered around Highland and 27th, and the first buyers were two African Americans from New Mexico named Charles and Willa Bruce, mm-hmm. who got the land for $1,225. After a few years of living there in December 1915, the Bruces began construction on a lodge that came to be known as Bruce's Lodge. That sounds familiar. You might be thinking of Bruce Almighty. Lodge. Oh. The Bruce Almighty theme sleepaway camp you went to? Bruce Almighty's Lodge? I've been thinking about the Bruce Lodge. That's what I call Any hospital. Bar you go yeah. to. <laughs> so the Bruce's Lodge, it had overnight rooms. Mm-hmm. It had a cafe, a dance hall, and amenities and shops that black people didn't have access to at other parts of the beach. So this was Southern California's first black beach resort, and it was a huge success. The guy I'm going to talk about is coming up later in this story, but there's so many like first things embedded in this story oh, yeah. of first thing. Okay. I'm about to tell you the story of my first kiss. <laughs> it all started last night. <laughs> Manhattan Beach. I was doing research, and this strange homeless man offered me something. He and said, I, if I sit on his lap, he'll tell me a secret. <laughs> and the secret, secret was? was? Kiss. <laughs> It was a big success, this place. They even bought up the three surrounding lots to Mm -hmm. expand the land of their resort. It also had easy access to Peck's Pier, also made by Gregory Peck, which was the only pier around that black people were welcome on. You could take the red car right to this area. This was the only place in the entire region where African Americans could freely, you know, have a day at the beach and all the amusements that go along with that. By 1919, four other black families lived around Bruce's Lodge, Mm -hmm. but being in the heart of what is still one of the widest parts of the city, it couldn't be that good. It it couldn't last forever. Even from the get-go, people were stealing the building materials and sabotaging the construction Uh, of the lodge. Some white guy living next to Bruce's claim that he owned the coast, so he put up ropes blocking all the people visiting Bruce's lodge from walking directly onto the beach, making them walk a mile to get around them to get on the beach. And then on July 4th... I drowned. (laughs) He put the ropes too far and he ended up in the middle of the ocean. On July 4th, 1924, Central Avenue's California Eagle newspaper reported Mm -hmm. that three African-Americans spending their 4th of July fishing off the Redondo Beach Pier were approached by three KKK members? Oh, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. (laughs) And they were given pamphlets called Principles of KKK and Ideals of Pure Americanism. That's Mm. very nice that they handed pamphlets out. They were beautifully printed. (laughs) Inside the pamphlets were a handwritten note note for them that said colored folks beach three miles north i'm surprised that that interaction went as well as it did to be I quite mean, like, honest watered down it's just giving directions and then you add all the stuff on top of it and you're like yeah it's more than just giving directions for sure <laughs> what color is that beach <laughs> green sand <laughs> Gee, that sounds swell. I don't I'm think you're keep, getting the message we're communicating I'm going to keep right. fishing here. <laughs> so the KKK was well aware of what was going on at Bruce's Beach. In the early 20s, they declared some sort of war of the races on Bruce's. <laughs> Klansmen would harass and insult the black beachgoers there. They tried to plant alcohol on the premises to try to get them arrested for violating prohibition. I just drank it all. <laughs> <laughs> the police showed up. There was just empty bottles. <laughs> Are you littering? No. Well, okay. <laughs> all right, bye. <laughs> they burned a house. They burned oh, a cross. They burned a mattress. Those are three lines from the KKK Dr. Seuss book. (laughs) 
the cat in the hood i don't know uh, no stop horton hatch is a hood <laughs> oh the places you'll go but <laughs> not all the places <laughs> all the places that will let you go so they god all, damn them <laughs> they also put up fake 10 minute only parking signs so that no one could park anywhere they even had a 24-hour phone committee to constantly be calling and harassing the lodge i don't know what like they how much say. i know when you're a redneck you don't have a job because they're unemployable but how much time do I you know. have to it is do weird this? that they had so much hatred and time to carry a mattress there they built a cross like i have the hate i don't have the time well, that's why i need an assistant <laughs> to carry out my biddings of hate and you know who those are minions <laughs> oh my god the kkk is so annoying like among like being one of the worst things this country has created and that perpetuates and is now being celebrated they're just so annoying they're just not cool they're not cool they're plain old not cool they've never been cool so the city of manhattan beach was also against bruce's lodge god damn it they passed the law <laughs> prohibiting bathhouses but since the one at bruce's was the only one in the city you can't help but think what were they trying to say here huh, odd. Hmm. then they also made it so that you weren't allowed to change your clothes in a car or in a tent just any excuse like yeah. everyone did that so any excuse they yeah. could get to be like well you gotta go i'm gonna swim in my suit <laughs> my three-piece suit yeah i'll go and swim my sunday's best come on get out of here i'll par- i'll swim for 10 minutes come on get out of here i want to go to the beach <laughs> the sign says 10 minutes i can walk around that rope for one mile <laughs> keep my suit on and go swimming and be back as beachfront property started to get more valuable manhattan beach started pressuring the bruces and the other four families to sell their land back to the city for below market value and as good of a deal as that sounds <laughs> four of the five families refused to sell including the bruces but the city found a loophole the city could condemn any plot of land under eminent domain if they wanted to use that land as a park so on january 7 1924 manhattan beach did that and kicked out all black people living around Bruce's Beach, even though the city already had Live Oak Park right over there. In protest, there's what was known as a wade-in, which is something that would happen pretty often in places like Chicago, where black people would go in the water at white beaches and refuse to leave. Not to damper your right to protest, you're going to get pneumonia. <laughs> that sounds dangerous. They're having a good time. Yeah, they're protesting. <laughs> That's a beach ball of justice. Looking voting for our rights. Civil rights beach party! <laughs> so the four families who refused to sell sued the city for Rachel 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 prejudice. <laughs> they were all named Rachel. The Bruces were angling for $120,000 but made it very clear they just want to keep the land. Yeah, it's all yeah. like we don't I know that's a lot of money so we can just take the land and be done with it. The lawsuit wasn't resolved until 1929 when mm. the Bruces took $14,500 and got the hell out of Manhattan Beach and moved to South LA. After the land was seized, however, the city just left it abandoned, but black beach lovers kept coming to it. They were coming so often that a city council member who up a fake no trespassing sign to keep them out and led to some of them getting arrested for violating a fake, a fake sign. sign yeah <laughs> and then on something that had no paperwork behind it yeah again to make a sign that looks realistic to enough the time yeah. what a country oh my god on manhattan beach you suck if you're listening to this no you suck but there's an expensive bar there <laughs> there's that bar that i would never drive to <laughs> on memorial day 1927 25 people were arrested for being at the former site of bruce's beach and that's when the naacp got involved get him the city had been trying to use that land as a whites only beach but after some more wait-ins and some legal battles the NAACP won the fake news sign was taken down and a California count 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 California (laughs) (laughs) Calablunga a California court required all beaches to uphold the standing laws that 
had been in place for a long time that anyone could use any beach. Get him. Manhattan Beach responded by raising the old resort and everything else in the old black area. Ah! So now it was just an empty sand dune for three decades, costing the city thousands of dollars a year until they turned it into City Park, then Beachfront Park, then in 1962, Bayview Terrace Park, then in 1974, Park Kuliakon, named after Manhattan Biddy. Manhattan Biddy. <laughs> Some old Biddy. Some old Biddy from Manhattan. <laughs> it was named after Manhattan Beach's sister city in Mexico until Culiacan became the headquarters of the Sinaloa drug cartel in the 80s and Manhattan Beach dropped them as a sister city and they renamed it Oceanfront Park. I, I have you... no sister. <laughs> they changed it to Oceanfront Park but that still no respect was paid to the area's past until 2007 when the city finally renamed it Bruce's Beach Park. Yay. It's between 26th and 27th from Highland to Manhattan and it is the oldest park in Manhattan Beach and thus concludes the longest prelude to the actual story I've ever done back to the 20s African Americans no longer had a safe place to go to the beach so the first I'm hearing about it (laughs) something happened to the land did they raise it at some point (laughs) they were looking further north but as you might have guessed wasn't easy in 1920 a black chauffeur named Arthur Valentine it's doubly his month Valentine's Day and Black History Month he went to the beach I read it was either near Topanga Canyon or in Santa Monica Mm -hmm. again on Memorial Day and the police told him and his friend to leave they didn't they didn't leave (laughs) so the cops threw one of the little kids and then beat up and shot valentine shot shot him with a gun shot Shot through the heart and on Valentine's hurts. Day. He wasn't shot through the heart. Uh, he, <laughs> it hurt a lot, though. <laughs> he decided to file a complaint about this, Please? but then the cops charged him with assault with a deadly weapon. I'm guessing his pool noodle. You could uh, be allergic to that. He shot me a dirty look, so I shot him, <laughs> and then I charged him for the dirty look. If looks could kill, nah. I would be dead right now. <laughs> and that's assault. In a white court, that's assault. His case wouldn't be heard by the L.A. County Civil Service Commission, so he went 2009. to... 2009. <laughs> Coming, I'm on the jury. <laughs> so he went to the district attorney, Thomas Lee Woolwine, who was known for taking cases for minorities. Mm-hmm. So together they filed felony charges against the officers, and there was no decision for three years of Valentine constantly being assaulted by the police and Woolwine being harassed by the KKK. And then all charges against both they're the parties same, you were know, they're dropped. The same, they're the same group. The LAPD and the KKK have the same Well, they people. would change uniforms <laughs> and then go after the other one. So the charges against both of the people involved were dropped, but this whole incident shed a light on the need for a part of the beach that African Americans could be in safely. Bruce's was a resort area near the beach, but what they wanted was a literal part of the sand that they could hang out on. So the area that seemed like a good candidate was in Santa Monica near Bay Street. There had been an African American community there centered around the Phillips Chapel Christian Methodist Episcopal Church. Which one? (laughs) You choose. (laughs) Choose your own church adventure. It was at Bay. Isn't that what religion is? Choose your own church? (laughs) Not most religions. (laughs) So this community, it was centered around the church at Bay and Forth since that church opened in 1908 as the first black church in Santa Monica. A lot of black-owned businesses opened up around the church, and after services, people would go down Bay and hang out at what they would call the Bay Street Beach, which was the beach area between Pico and Bicknell. I Uh, usually go to the Beach Street Bay. So this area, it was south of the Santa Monica Pier, north of Ocean Park Pier, to put in context of that other episode we did, the Venice episode. Once Bruce's was shut down in 1924, this was the only beach that allowed African Americans, even though the law said they were welcome anymore. So a group led by Norman O. Houston and Charles S. Darden called the Ocean Frontage Syndicate... (laughs) 
mafioso-lific. <laughs> it set out to try to build this area up as a new black resort, and uh -huh. they had their eye on the old abandoned Crystal Plunge. We talked about that, didn't we? Didn't we talk about the Crystal that Plunge? sounds very familiar. In the beach, in the pier episode, it was like a, a big amusement area. Okay, yeah. But Santa Monica was in the habit of denying a lot of African-American building permits, so hmm. they were not allowed to buy it. How and very it, uncool of Santa Monica. <laughs> how <laughs> totally wicked uncool. <laughs> That's not dynamite. We'll be talking about him later. Oh, yeah, Jimmy J.J. Walker. They weren't allowed to buy it, and it was instead turned into the Casa del Mar in 1926, which okay. is still there, complete with fences around it to keep black people oh, out. Oh, my God fences. When will we learn? There was also the Santa Monica Bay Protective League formed in 1922 to drive out African Americans from the neighborhood. <laughs> they no doubt were instrumental in the battle with George Caldwell's dance hall at 3rd and Pico, which was a popular African-American hangout that had huge dances every Sunday night, until they started getting too rowdy for the city's taste, so the city of Santa Monica banned dances. I don't know if you guys heard the audio of me rolling my eyes so hard at that. No more dancing! <laughs> Unless it's very stiff and non-rhythmical, like we like. We are outlawing being footloose. Local white people didn't think the Bay Street Beach had a nice enough ring to it, so they took it upon themselves to give it a new name, Inkwell Beach. God. In reference to the color of the skin of the people who would hang out there. Well, gosh darn it, that's awful. <laughs> there were lots of beaches in the U.S. that friendly local white people had given the name Inkwell, so it wasn't even original. It was just your standard It's weird that you have so much time to do other things, but you, you don't you lack the creativity. <laughs> well, why waste they? time when you already... This is how the KKK has their protocol. That's what you call it. <laughs> we so, can't come up with names. We're too busy burning stuff. <laughs> we burned all of our ideas. How about we call it Get Out? <laughs> <laughs> well, we need a little bit subtlety <laughs> how about we call it please don't come <laughs> come on mr mayor <laughs> so the beach was informally segregated and was roped off from the other wider parts of the beach and was marked rope a beach off i don't like again to bring it back to building a wall between mexico like the wall there is wall there already and then yeah. when it hits the ocean it goes out like 30 feet but if you swim past 30 feet yeah. just go around it and go around it and i do that's how I got here. So this beach was also marked for Negroes only. There's a big sign okay. saying that. Just and then also like, we didn't let them come in. <laughs> we had the sign. Really it was a formality. They weren't welcome. It was for nobody. So in 1935, the city built the Pico Kenter storm drain there where all the nearby gutter runoff drained into the ocean, which made the place even more pleasant. And the confines of the beach got shrunk and pushed around as white developments got built up around it. But regardless, the black community was still, they were still having a good time there. They had the La Bonita bathhouse on Pico. There was uh -huh. Thurman's Restawile Apartments, the Dew Drop Inn and Cafe, cool. Arkansas Traveler Inn. The next door, Casa Del Mar, that they weren't able to have was mm -hmm. close enough that they could hear all the music and they could dance to it all for free. And they even, the floodlights for that place lit up their beach at night. So they didn't have to pay for it. They just got all this That's for free. so depressing. <laughs> We're having runoff entertainment. <laughs> We're having runoff gutter water and runoff <laughs> and entertainment. entertainment. So they reclaimed the derogatory name Inkwell and they were proud like yeah, this is our beach it. this is yeah. Inkwell Beach by the 1940s there were around 2,000 African Americans lived in Santa Monica growing up in this community producing people like Nat Tribes who in 1975 went on to become the first black mayor of Santa Monica oh, cool. mayor 
I like the sound of that. Also, Lloyd C. Allen, who opened up the Allen Janitorial Supply at 4th and Pico in 1949, he went on to become Santa Monica's first black millionaire. Oh, wow. But now, at long last, the person I'm actually here to talk about. <laughs> Nicholas Rolando Gabaldon Jr. Born in Los Angeles. By the way, here's a robot's name. Gabaldon. Gabobot. <laughs> he was born February 23rd, 1927 to Cecilia and Nicholas Gabaldon. Mm-hmm. Gabobot Sr. <laughs> 1.0. He was part Mexican-American, part African-American, and grew up in Santa Monica. He graduated from Santa Monica High School in 1945, one of only 50 African-Americans to uh-huh. graduate from there in all of the 40s. Oh, wow. That's like two a year. I don't know the math. Don't tweet us about the math. And listen, we don't know how to reply in tweet form, okay? <laughs> Especially when there's numbers involved. Just call us. Send us a letter. Come on. Shout at the moon. <laughs> we live on the moon. <laughs> we are the men in the moon. I am the who when you cry who's there. After high school, he joined the Navy where he was stationed at United States Naval at Great Lakes where he became a championship boxer until 1946 when World War II ended and he came home and enrolled at Santa Monica City College and became an honor student as he also worked at, I read several things, a postman in a hospital and as a lifeguard and spent his free time hanging out at Inkwell where the white lifeguard surf legend Preston Pete Peterson took a shine to him and allowed him to borrow the rescue surfboard to learn how to surf. Rescue surfboard. Come on. <laughs> oh no, he's only hanging eight. Emergency. Yeah. Grab the rescue surfboard and a puka shell. Someone's not hanging loose. <laughs> Peterson and another legendary surfer named Buzzy Trent saw mm. the talent in Gabaldon, Gabaldon and encouraged him to continue surfing and he is today recognized as being the first known African American surfer. So that's what this story's about. Get him. First known African American surfer. As he got better and better surfing at Inkwell wasn't cutting it anymore. He got the itch to go shred in the boo. The Malibu. Oh no, not that one, please. <laughs> no, no, I thought it was caribou. <laughs> in the summer of 1949, he attempted for the first time to go to Malibu, but he had no car, so he tried hitchhiking, but nobody would pick him up because he was black and holding a giant surfboard, and nobody had the room in their car or their hearts. So instead, he decided to paddle on his surfboard what? in the water 12 miles from oh. Santa Monica to Surfrider Beach in Malibu. That's crazy. Yeah. Probably against the tide. And sharks like... I think you're exaggerating, but all right. No, there were sharks. I swear to God, he had to punch 40 <laughs> sharks to get there. Right and then the- he got swallowed by a whale. It was so awesome. <laughs> then he became a real boy. He started a fire so that the whale sneezed and he landed in Malibu. He made that trip almost every day for several weeks before people took mercy on him and they're like, I'll, I'll give you get a ride. It, get, in get, get in this dumb Get in my car. dumb Woody. <laughs> but he found that up in Malibu, Malibu, not only were the waves wickedly more bodacious, but people's attitudes were just as bodacious as the waves. I don't believe that. I believe someone got shot previously. <laughs> nah, that was in Santa Monica, maybe. <laughs> so there was not as much racial separation up there at this time, and when he paddled out to the waves, he was rarely ever treated the way people treated him back on land. Mm-hmm. In fact, the legendary surfers up in Malibu had a lot of respect for Little Gabaldon. In a sport that was and still is considered mostly white, guys like Joe Quigg, Matt Kivlin, Ricky Grigg, Tom Zahn, Peter Call, Dave Heiser, Bill Poole, and other names my spikes aren't frosted enough to know. <laughs> he was becoming an elite surfer and he was loving it. He was having a great time. On May 31st, 1951, he wrote a poem for the Santa Monica College literary magazine called Lost Lives. From the poem, the sea vindictive with waves so high for men to battle and still they die. Many has it taken
taken to its bowels below without regard it thus does bestow its laurels to unwary men scores and scores have fallen prey to the slat of animosity and many more will victims be of the capricious vindictive sea oh, wow. ominous five days later it was one of the biggest recorded swells in Malibu history making waves up to 10 feet high people were coming from all around the area to get a piece of the waves the next day June 5th 1951 Gabaldon rode out past the safe zone with the intention of shooting the pier which means to surf between like the pilings of the pier but the wave took control of him and rammed him right into the Malibu pier his surfboard washed back onto the shore but his body wasn't found until three or four days later at Las Flores Beach sure alive why did you let me listen to all of that and tell me that he crashed into the I know I was doing the article like that this is a cool guy how come there's not much story He was 24 years old. He oh, died. Gabaldon. He was I'm dead. Sorry. He was deactivated. That's so tragic. Yeah. His funeral was at the St. Monica Catholic Church and he's buried at the Woodlawn Cemetery in, in Santa Monica. His oh. mom died later that year and was buried next to him. His story is not really well known. He was mentioned in the book Gidget. There's a character based on him in the Surf God HTB app, which you, you must play. <laughs> I like to play it when I'm surfing, which <laughs> goes to show why I have It so enhances many phones. the, it's a two screen experience. <laughs> the second screen of my eyes. But on February 7th, 2008, the city finally put up a plaque at Bay and Oceanfront Walk commemorating that that was the area that Inkwell had existed at. And they mentioned Gabaldon on the plaque, Gabaldon. He's mentioned in the documentary Whitewash. And in 2012, another documentary called 12 Miles North, the Nick Gabaldon story came out. And in 2013, Heal the Bay declared June 1st to be Nick Gabaldon Day, which was a whole day celebration of him and the path he paved complete with free admission to the aquarium, okay. screenings of both the documentaries, and then a paddle out to see tribute to him and then they had surf lessons for whoever wanted to take them wow. many of whom were young African American residents of the city who were at the beach that day for the first time in their whole lives which is a reminder of the legacy of this disgusting racism that was going on in the city's beaches way back when that pushed African Americans away from the beach but it also you know it was a show of the legacy of Gabaldon who showed them that they could be out there with all the pasty puka shell boys also <laughs> it's for everybody that's pretty great yeah I, I had no idea about about this guy and I was reading it. Wait, he, why aren't there current interviews with him? <laughs> why is he not in Dogtown and Z-Boys? I don't understand. Oh. Alright, well I'm going to talk about the next one. In our very first episode when we were a bunch of dad joke telling nobodies who <laughs> couldn't even book a live show, we talked about the progressive female librarians of the Alley Public Library. While it's now time to focus on one librarian in particular, the very first black librarian of Los Angeles, Miriam Matthews. You ready for this? Thank you. I caught a fly. You also knocked one of my earphones out. It was a fly on your ear. <laughs> she was born in August of 1906 in Pensacola, which is the worst soda in Florida. <laughs> there were three competing brands, <laughs> Pepsi, Coke, and Pensa. Uh, luckily, the Matthews family decided to leave Bizarro, California for the real thing and moved to Los Angeles when Miriam was a ba- toddler baby, just under two years old. She, like Tom Bradley, who I'll mention later, was a Bruin. She attended UCLA, although it was earlier than him, and was a founding member of the Delta Sigma Theta sorority. She then transferred out and attended UC Berkeley and received her bachelor's in 1926 and earned her librarianship a year later in 1927. She returned to Los Angeles that year and despite subtle attempts to keep Miss Matthews from knowing when the required civil service examination would be offered due to her race, <laughs> she took the exam. Uh, apparently she went into like a branch and asked somebody like, how do I get a job? Like, oh, we have to take the exam. It's every June. And then she found out it was in May. But she was like, <laughs> came home just in time. Someone was like, you know, the exam's happening. From working at the library, they could have just not known. <laughs> it was because she was black, okay? She took the test, she passed it. And in July of 1927, she became an LA substitute librarian, which 
which mostly means she just played videos. <laughs> Within three months, Matthew became a full-time librarian, though, first at the Vermont Square branch and then on to Robert Louis Stevenson branch in Boyle Heights. Mm-hmm. She was the first professionally trained and credentialed black librarian to be added to the staff, which she studied at UC Berkeley. She was 22 years old. Oh, my God. She was not only the only black employee of the library system at the time, because of segregation and housing regulations, kept most black people from the city away from the libraries she worked in. So she might have been the only black person in the building she was typically working in. She said that the color was always an issue, or at least like it was all she was always aware of it. In 1929, she helped organize Negro History Week, which eventually became Black History Month. They got four months. They got four weeks for it. Black History Quarter. <laughs> that same year, she became branch librarian, I believe, at the Helen Hunt Jackson Branch Library, which was a beautiful Spanish colonial branch on Central Avenue that since closed down. Helen Hunt. Helen Hunt Jackson. <laughs> now I think it's a church. I can't find an address, so I imagine it's gone forever. While working there, she discovered a small collection, in her words, not mine, a small collection of books on the Negro and began very interested in building her own collection of materials. So throughout the 30s, she continued to assemble what would become one of the strongest and most extensive private collections of books, documents, photographs, and artworks on black culture. Because there was nothing at the time until she started going to Helen Hunt Jackson and there was like a small collection. Her skills as a librarian aided in her research of historical materials. She started researching various ways black people had made impressions on the history of California. With this, she was able to really emphasize and make accessible information about the role that black people had in history of Los Angeles. Her collection of materials and photographs went back to like the 18th century with documents that reached as far back as 1781. With her help, we were able to get a better idea of the role that the black population played in pre-American years of California. Her collection details the importance of pre- and post-slavery conditions of the Civil War in California. African Americans played important roles in the West as settlers, entrepreneurs, as we see barbers, barbers, as we see <laughs> surfers, <laughs> surfers, barbers. This is what she accomplished as a researcher. As a librarian, she was able to preserve these materials and make them accessible to the public. As the librarian, she kicked out more homeless men than... <laughs> Her job was to tell homeless people they smelled. So with the relief, no, I just want you to know that you smell. Just be aware. Miss Matthews could have told us about Peter Rand, who was a black man and a member of the first trailblazing party to cross the Sierra Nevada, which at the time was the only thing that separated California from the rest of the country until they crossed it. She could have told us about Robert William Stewart, the first black officer of the LAPD, appointed in 1886, which might have made him the first black municipal police officer in the United States. Or she could have told us about sculptor Balula Woodward, who was the first black woman to be presented in a one-person show at the Alley County Museum in 1935. Basically, all the information that we needed for this episode. Well, why don't we just interview her? I'll get to that. She didn't die on the pier, did she? She was surfing. <laughs> oh, no. No, no, no. no, no. Miriam? <laughs> Momo! Miss Matthews was a champion of intellectual freedom, which was equal access to all information for everyone, a strong supporter of the arts and education, in particular of Southern California. Whether she would have liked this podcast, I don't know, but she would have given it a try. <laughs> During the 40s, right when the Cold War was starting between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, she was on the Committee for Intellectual Freedom, which is part of the CLA, the California Library Association. This was during the McCarthy era years of this country where there was a lot of paranoia and name-naming about communism. The L.A. County Board of Supervisors got caught up in government regulations, and they adopted a loyalty oath in which you, as a city worker, had to pledge to refrain from any anti-American activities, but to also disclose support of any of the 150 organizations deemed to be subversive. You had to tell them if you were part of this. Matthews, along with many other librarians, refused to sign the loyalty oath, <laughs> refused to pledge anything to these people, which librarians is radical. This is always like a funny idea to me. I'm going to tell you to shush, but also shush on everything. Not just in the library, but like cut it out. Cut it out. The government also wanted to appoint a five-member panel to examine all books purchased by the library and keep overly liberal materials off the shelf. Trump's New America. Matthews and... Trump's original. (laughs) Senior Trump's uh, America. Matthews and many others knew that this sounded very un-American and went against what she stood for, which was intellectual freedom. After all, she was the chair of the Committee on Intellectual Freedom. She testified before the supervisors in support of the county librarian, John Henderson, and with the help of the ACLU, they rounded up the support from different groups like the League of Women Voters, the ALA, the American Library Association, 
Association, the local parent teachers association, different newspapers that were local, and they fought them off. The review panel rescinded their decision, and a bunch of librarians protected the rights of the citizens. Get them. You're I'm distracted by your Trump hands. Oh, sorry. You keep <laughs> making Trump hands. I want to emphasize he's like a composer, but he's composing paranoia and craziness. <laughs> During this time, or shortly after, it's kind of hard to tell in this timeline, but as librarian, she felt a bit stuck. She wasn't satisfied, and after 10 years of not being able to move up position wise, in 1945, she took a leave of absence to get her master's degree in library science from the University of Chicago. Her master's thesis was titled Library Activities in the Field of Race Relations. Upon returning to LA in 1949, she was promoted to the regional librarian supervising 12 branches of the LAPL. Again, first black woman to do this. Hmm. So she was yeah, oh, interesting. Big wig. She would have been a boss of ours. In 1950, she became the co founder of the Associated Arts Gallery and was a loyal supporter of emerging black artists. Both her art collection and her historical collection continue to grow. She's also collected art from African American artists. Among her collections, she had Charles White's I've Known Rivers and Elizabeth Catlett's bronze statue titled Glory, which sort of looks like Norman Bates' mother if you ever see it. <laughs> At what phase in her existence? Like the hair and the sort of pose of what you find her mother, but like imagine a face on top of that. Oh. Not just a skeleton. Oh. Mostly just the hair threw me like that. Oh. And it was on a spinning chair that and she me. insisted it be in a fruit cellar. That she called me fruity for pointing it out. <laughs> Over the years, she loaned her paintings or donated them to different institutions, the California African American Museum in LA. She lent some stuff out to the Oakland Public Library System. In 1960, Mary Matthews retired as the librarian of LAPL system, but continued to remain active as a historical resource. She became like an archivist, but not as a job title, as much as like an adopted role that she fell into. She started a collection, and then she became the only person with that big of a collection, <laughs> and she knew her collection, so she started becoming like a resource for information. There was is, just no a better way to explain what she's doing exactly, than Exactly, yeah, she's an archivist. Her expertise in African-American lives in Southern California made her especially valuable, and in 1977, the California governor, Edmund Brown, appointed her to both the California Heritage Preservation Committee and the California State Historical Records Advisory Board. In these roles, she worked on improving practices within the state and was essential in the development of a permanent archival program for the city. So she's basically building all the resources the black community needs to understand <laughs> their history and then how they function within the city. She was historically. creating a physical internet? Yeah, basically. For yeah. black history. For, yeah, exactly. She was the real Google. That was her him. true name. <laughs> in 1981, during the city's bicentennial, which is 200-year anniversary. i saying my biceptennials right now. <laughs> dad joke. <laughs> but a really buff dad that yeah, you like, want to sleep with. Miss <laughs> Matthews helped create the monument. The plaque is known, I wrote the plaque, the plaque is known as the <laughs> Al Pueblo de la Reina de Los Angeles, which is a monument to the original settlers, the 11 Mexican families who are all technically Spanish if you go by country that you live under, but ethnically they were Spaniards, Blacks, Mexican Indians, mixes of all of those things. This was to replace a similar plaque from the 70s that only listed the original founders of Los Angeles. There was also a plaque in the 50s that went missing months after being erected. This new 80s plaque was totally rad. It was mostly a video game. <laughs> geometric shapes on it. It was 8-bit or whatever. That's uh, six more than I want to pay for a shave and a haircut. <laughs> Still cheaper than what that guy was charging. The one in the 80s that Miss Matthews helped put together not only listed the name of the original founders, but their age, sex, and race, which is an important reminder that Los Angeles, from its very nature, is multicultural. So she helped? Yeah. She provided the information huh. for the plaque that's there. At the base of the plaque is another plaque dedicated to Mary Matthews for her <laughs> efforts. A plaque dedicated to the plaque? Yeah, a sub-plaque. Over the years, Miss Matthews had received many awards and dedications. Cal State Dominguez Hills also named an annual award 
award and a scholarship after Mary Matthews. In 1984, Georgia envisioned the world that we now live in. In 1984, she received an award from the Alley County Board of Supervisors, who she once brawled with. In 1988, she was named one of the first five fellows of the Historical Society of Southern California, even though she's not a fellow. <laughs> fella. Fella. In 2000, the California Community Foundation named Miss Matthews one of the 100 unsung heroes of Los Angeles. I'm singing her right now. <laughs> I uh... Uh, Mary Matthews. <laughs> Miss Matthews passed away in 2003 at the age of 97. God, these people were among us. No, not these people. Oh my God. These people we're talking about. They lived among us and we were like, who's these? I don't I know. know. They, we were, they were unsung until we were singing around. She probably read us stories at the library. Oh my God, stop. Who's this old lady? Where's the candy lady? <laughs> she was living in Washington when she passed. Her collection seems to be dispersed. Alley PL and Oakland PL seem to collect and preserve many of her historic photographs. UCLA houses her correspondences and a lot of her papers. The Dunbar Museum, which I didn't know was a museum, which is on Central Avenue. It's an institution of black culture. has a collection of historic photos as well. One room at the Dunbar is given... It's in the hotel? I guess so. Why haven't we gone to this? I don't know. <laughs> One room at the Dunbar is given to her pictorial collections of California firsts, which is what we're what, doing. Yeah, we're, what doing what we're doing the, right now. The yeah. audio version yeah, of the exactly. rap room. Yeah, so that's Mary Matthews' first One of library. the libraries is also... One of the branches mm, is, is named, named after, after her. her. God, stop doing Trump hands. I can't help it. <laughs> Someone's New America. My hand's New America. <laughs> so far, we've talked about some positive things. There's no cutesy buildup to this one because this might be the most offensive thing I've ever talked about on this podcast oh, that hasn't been edited boy. out at Greg's frantic request. Hot button with a uh, hot button, boys. Hot button. Oh, my fingerprints are melted <laughs> off because this button is so hot. It's the story of an actor. No. On May 30th, either 1902 or in 1892, depending on who you want to believe, in Key West, Florida, Bizarro, California, Bizarro, again, California. two immigrants immigrants from the West Indies that were obsessed with U.S. presidents had a little boy named Lincoln Theodore Monroe Andrew Perry. You choose which is the they first had, and which is the they last. They were quadruplets? <laughs> the family soon moved to Montgomery, Alabama until Lincoln turned 14 and little Lincoln ran away from home to get into show business. He started out dream. to just be on the road in Alabama <laughs> as a little black kid. <laughs> Doing fine. <laughs> in the early 1900s. <laughs> he started out dancing and singing and telling jokes in plantation shows, which were all black shows put on for the black farm workers in the South. It's the first of many offensive <laughs> things from the past you're going to hear about. I, right that, I don't know if that's offensive as much as it is. I've never heard of a plantation show. Some of these things I had no idea existed. From there, he moved on to medicine shows, which is the guys who sold snake oil and yeah. stuff like that. Then minstrel shows, which uh, we all know what those are. And then now we get to the stuff that we shouldn't <laughs> Carnivals. <laughs> he was working carnivals before he moved on to vaudeville, where he performed on what was offensively known as the Chitlin Circuit, Ooh. which was the string of theaters that welcomed black performers. And eventually he made his way to Los Angeles in the mid-20s, where he was making $300 a week. Oh, wow. Yes, very good. In the uh, 20s, yeah, that's pretty good. That's, uh, I'm still liking that. <laughs> now with four first names and a bland last one, you'd think he was <laughs> born ready to go on stage. Sounds like he has five last names. <laughs> He's only last names. So he felt he needed a snappier name because Lincoln Perry was too easy. He could have just taken the first and the last that's yeah. too easy there are several different stories on how exactly this name he took came about one was that it was the name of a racehorse who won him $30 when he was broke another was that it came from a song he sang about this money making horse and the song became so popular that a theater manager just attached that name to him mm -hmm. another says it came from the name of a comedy team he was all called Step and Fetch It okay whatever it was the next offensive thing I'm going to say was his new stage name Step and Fetch It which is 
is like yeah, yeah like a white person ordering a black person to do I something. I that. That's L- let that me meant. tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> let me do Trump hand and tell you. At one performance, a Fox Studios talent scout saw Fetchit and decided to give him a screen test to be considered for the movies being made in that new place down where the runaways will live someday, Hollywood. His first movie was 1925's... <laughs> you, you go down to where the new Hooters is at. <laughs> someday, this whole street will be Hooters. <laughs> Owls? Sure. <laughs> that will be the joke. <laughs> for a dad joke, if you were. <laughs> and right over there... There? Hard Rock Cafe. <laughs> His first movie was 1925's The Mysterious Stranger, but the first popular movie he was in was In Old Kentucky in 1927. His character was popular and he did a few more movies until 1925 when he signed a contract with Fox, which is something that never happened for a black actor to get a contract from a big movie studio. Yeah. But Fetchit tapped into something at just the right time. He became so popular with audiences that he was soon getting scenes written into movies just for him. Wow. And the scenes, they kept coming. He was sometimes doing as many as four movies at a time. Between 1929 and 1935, he was in 26 movies. In 1934 alone, he was in seven movies. Huh. By the end of his career, he had been in 54 total. And it wasn't just the audiences who loved him. Both Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton expressed admiration for his comedic timing. Cool. A New York Times movie critic said that his characters were so finely executed that they were as stylized as James Joyce. That Wow fart-loving pervert James Joyce. creep. (laughs) Robert Benchley said that Fetchett was the finest actor that the talking movies have yet produced. He was in four movies with Shirley Temple, four with Will Rogers that were never released. He made his own production company to film the lives of black athletes like Jack Johnson, who was his friend, but that experiment failed. Now, this is why we're talking about him. He was the first black actor to be given featured billing in a movie. Oh, wow. He was also the first black movie star and the first black actor to become a millionaire. During the Depression, he was making more money than the president was. <laughs> I yes. wanted to make a joke about being richer than president, then I had to think about who the president was, and I couldn't think of who the president was. Yeah, who knows who the president was? Before Trump, he's the only president who matters. Who was it? Was it Roosevelt's? In no. the 30s? Was it Hoover? Yeah, that's Maybe. probably it. I don't know. You know what? Who cares about the past uh, anymore? Hoover cares about the past. I'm just going to rip this up. <laughs> Let's just riff. Uh... Uh, uh, give us a suggestion. Uh, cucks. Uh. Uh, before we go comparing him to James Joyce, <laughs> let's look I at. I feel like it's too late. <laughs> let's look at exactly what sort of character he was playing in these movies, and you'll see why I warned you how offensive this story was going to okay. be. While Charlie Chaplin had the little tramp mm. step and fetch it, the first black actor to be given screen credit had the laziest man in the world. That was his character. The That's char- not much to watch on TV, really. <laughs> yeah, TV. <laughs> get it, get it, get it. God, he's so dumb. He thinks he goes to a movie theater and he mm. thinks he lives there and that's his TV. <laughs> he's so dumb. Everybody, Greg, he is brings dumb. a remote to the movie theaters. Why? We you all play stupid? along with it. We're too scared to tell him he's wrong. He just thinks he got a lucky day and there's no commercials on. <laughs> what is this, uh, PBS? <laughs> this character was slow witted, dim looking, and you guessed it, supremely lazy. Oh boy. He would often be a slave or if not a servant. There were two sorts of racist characters that black men would be forced to play that had developed. And I'm sorry for using these words, but this is what they were called, and Greg told me to say them. <laughs> there was the Sambo, mm-hmm. who 
would submit to anything and was loyal to the white devil. Oh. That's one character. Yeah. And then there was the coon who was aloof and seemingly dim-witted, but would play on his white oppressor's prejudices into thinking that he was in fact dim-witted and would use that to trick them into getting his way. Like a trickster. He was a trickster. Yeah. For example, pretending to be so dumb as to not be able to do some basic task to the point of the white guy getting so frustrated that he'd just do it himself. So oh, that's what that character would do. All the while he was making sarcastic comments behind the white guy's back. Pretty subversive. Yeah, but still. <laughs> Fetchit was the prototype of this character. White audiences loved him because he was stupid and they didn't see him as a threat. That's why they liked yeah. him. A lot of black audiences, they also loved him though. But then there were the African Americans who were working to get rid of this yeah, image of black people that the country had. They hated Stepan Fetchit. He was denounced by black civic and church leaders who saw him as an obstacle keeping African Americans from being equal members of the mainstream. And keep in mind, this was at the same time as the Harlem Renaissance. Oh, <laughs> Langston no. Hughes hated Stepan Fetchit. I hope so. <laughs> so like, there are all these writers and poets and musicians that were working so hard to change the racist image white America had of African Americans and then Stepan Fetchit's going around Just doing the most trampling all over things. everything. Yeah, and that's what they're, I mean, they're, yeah, we could listen to jazz or we could go <laughs> see this Shirley Temple movie. Fetchit said he came up with this character as a way to stand out from all the other black actors he was competing for roles with, but what he ended up doing was making a name for himself, making fun of his own race. And make a name he did. He lived a lavish lifestyle out of his home at 1609 East 40th Street in South LA. He supposedly had 16 servants in his house, 12 cars, including a pink Cadillac with his name on the side written in neon lights. That sounds like... A- it sounds like a recipe for an exploding car. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like when you get in an accident, a lot more is going to happen than should. <laughs> we would have been fine but with a neon cracked and we all inhaled it. <laughs> I swallowed a bunch of neon letters. <laughs> he would party on Central Avenue. He wore nice suits, most of which supposedly came from Rudolph Valentino. Oh, all right. He was also difficult to work with getting in a lot of arguments. He was always fighting with Fox to get equal pay and billing with his white co-stars, mm-hmm. which he never got. It was a noble fight, but it didn't help his reputation in town. Yeah. He had a taste for alcohol and underage girls. Boy. In 1929... Just like Chaplin. <laughs> he knows one when he sees yeah. one. You look like you like gross sex. <laughs> You look like you like no-nos, right? What does the word taboo mean to you? <laughs> Nothing? Good. In 1929, when he was in his 30s, he married a 16-year-old named Dorothy Stevenson after breaking up with his 17-year-old girlfriend named Yvonne Butler, who then You're sued too old for me, babe. <laughs> I got a younger model. The 17-year-old sued him for $5,000 for breach of contract to marry her. And then in 1934, just five years later, Dorothy died for a reason I cannot find. And then in 1943, he was arrested for sleeping with a 16-year-old named Juanita Randolph, and that kind of put a damper on his marketability. Yeah, I hope so. It also didn't help that by this time, the sort of character he was playing was becoming so outdated and unacceptable that few people wanted to hire him. And once African-American entertainers that you could actually look up to started showing up like Lena Horne, the black community, they were done with Step and Fetch yeah. it. In 1942, NAACP Executive Secretary Walter White, not that one, <laughs> specifically called out Step and Fetch it and demanded that negative African-American representations in movies stop. 
then Duke ask, Ellington ask, hit yeah, him. Ask me if that happened. Nah. He wanted to try to do new things, but nobody would let him, and he was stuck doing so-called race films, which were made specifically for black audiences. And in 1947, with $146 to his name, he declared bankruptcy. His late-in-life years were somehow even stranger than his uh, earlier years. No. After going bankrupt, he went back on the road performing live around the country. In the 50s, he begged John Ford for some work, and they made a few movies together that only a couple of those were released. Then in the early 60s, he converted to Islam and became friends with Malcolm X. And then in 1965, became part of Muhammad Ali's entourage after Ali found out that he had been close with Jack Johnson and Ali hoped Fetchett might know the secrets of Johnson's anchor punch. Uh, so he became Ali's special strategist. What, what, what was entertainment like? <laughs> you were qualified to do anything. Yeah, basically. Will Parker wrote a play about this friendship a few years ago called Fetch Clay Make Man. Then in, a pretty cool title. Then in 1969, Fetchett's son, Donald Lambright, killed his wife and then went on a shooting spree with a high-powered rifle along a 20-mile stretch of the Pennsylvania Turnpike, killing three and wounding 15 before then killing himself. Wait, whose son? Steppen Fetchett's son. Son of Fetchett. Wow. Your stories today are very 70s movies. <laughs> Celebrities' children. I can't control them. <laughs> then in 1970, a documentary on CBS came out called Black History Lost, Stolen, or Strayed, narrated by another showbiz disgrace, Bill Cosby. Cosby said in the documentary, the tradition of the lazy, stupid, crapshooter chicken stealing idiot was popularized by an actor named Lincoln Theodore Monroe Andrew Perry. Ouch. Fetchett responded by suing CBS and Bill Cosby for $3 million. He lost because he was considered a public figure and Bill Cosby never loses in court so <laughs> he did a couple more movies in the 70s and his final one in 1976 was Wonton Ton the Dog Who Saved Hollywood. Is that part of your dog collection? I hope it's part of my dog collection. I got a collection of dog movies for Hanukkah and I hope that's it there. <laughs> I also got a step and fetch a collection if you want to borrow it i do that same year he had a stroke and on november 19th 1985 died of heart failure and pneumonia at age 93 at the motion picture country home in woodland hills he's buried at calvary cemetery this guy's legacy as you might have guessed has not been kind to him and it was actually very damaging that black stereotype that existed in movies was pretty much created by step and fetch it he's the root of it he's the root of it he paved the way for more offensive portrayals from guys like willie best and who was the guy who said a uh, Montem Moreland or yeah. yeah all those horrible black caricatures and all the old Disney shorts those were modeled after Step and Oof. Fetch It the name Step and Fetch It turned into an insult like Uncle Tom to be yeah. a Step and Fetch It meant you were a sellout to the white man and you were a traitor to your race a lot of his movies stopped circulating and scenes he was in in other movies were cut out because people just didn't want to see that so it's kind of hard to find the really offensive stuff anymore because yeah. it's been burned and you keep looking I want to see it <laughs> most recently his name was a in the year 1999. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, racism came back. When The Phantom Menace came out, there was a lot of talk about how Jar Jar Binks oh carried God. on this tradition. The Wall Street Journal described Jar Jar Binks as Rastafarian step and fetch it on platform hoofs. Ooh, that's a beautiful turn of phrase, but <laughs> ouch. He didn't use his talents wisely, but there's no denying that he was really talented and he did open the door for black actors in Hollywood, even though what walked through that door was the last thing they wanted to see. <laughs> Guys like comedian Dick Gregory looked 
looked up to fetch it as a hero just because of the thrill of actually seeing a guy who had the same skin color yeah. as him on a movie screen. Jimmy JJ Dynamite Walker, who was accused of the same thing Stephen Fetchett was accused of yeah. in terms of racial caricatures, praised him as continuing a classic tradition coming from slavery called putting on old massa, which was when someone would purposely break the tools or something like that so that the slaves wouldn't have to work. He saw Fetchett as a trickster in that same tradition. Right. For this, he was awarded an NAACP Special Image Award and in 1978 was entered into the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame. He has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He always saw himself as a trailblazer and not a traitor. <laughs> as he put it, just because Charlie Chaplin played a tramp doesn't make tramps out of all Englishmen and just because Dean Martin drinks that doesn't make drunks out of all Italians. All right. I was only playing a character and that character did a lot of good. He insisted that his character would not have been seen as offensive if he had been in a movie surrounded by other black characters yeah. who weren't. If there, it was yeah. just like a bunch of normal people and then him he, would just be the he was the wacky character. Yeah, he would have exactly. just been the wacky character rather than being the only representation of African Americans in the movie was this ridiculous thing. It's weird when like not to take you too far away that's what a lot of e-boppers thought about Louis Armstrong. Yeah. He they, was embarrassing yeah. to people. Because he's the only one they saw. <laughs> yeah but also like he was like the happy smiling getting along with yeah. everybody and then everybody like Charlie Parker was like that's not what it's like. <laughs> Charlie Parker's never heroin. smiled in his life. <laughs> like I see his point but then he, he went a little nuts and he said stuff like it was not Martin Luther King who emancipated the modern Negro but step and fetch it. Oh boy. It was step who elevated the Negro to the dignity of a Hollywood star. I made the Negro a first class citizen all over the world. I defied the law of white supremacy. I had to defy a law that said Negroes were supposed to be inferior. I became the first Negro entertainer to become a millionaire. This is the most time I've said that word my entire life. Millionaire. <laughs> All the things that Cosby and Poitier have done wouldn't be possible if I hadn't broken that law. So he's to blame for Cosby. <laughs> yep. If I hadn't drugged all of those <laughs> moviegoers, <laughs> I set up the thrones for them to come and sit on. And sit on it, Cosby did. So he's really a cautionary story showing people's responsibility, whatever race yeah. or whatever you are, to not sell your race short and to try to represent yourself for who you are and not what some ignorant public wants you to be. Look at the lasting impact just one actor had for coming up on a hundred years now. This one yeah. guy, a lot of damage yeah. he did. A lot of the articles I read also drew comparison to another Perry that's working today who's towing a similar <laughs> line with his Medea character. Yeah, I was going to say that. It's easy to dismiss Fetchett's decision as having no other choice than to be that character. Yeah. But in 2017, it's good to think twice when you do that sort of thing. Like you don't have to dress like a woman. You can <laughs> dress like a woman. I like the feeling of their clothes though. <laughs> I'm not going to stop. Listen, I think I look good in a pencil skirt. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> okay. That was- okay, bye. <laughs> okay, I got to go. Okay, thanks. This is too much for me. Bye. Love you, bye. Race relations scare me. Bye. <laughs> all right, I'm going to be talking about a guy that I alluded to before. This is a story of Tom Bradley. A lovely mayor. The Bradley Bunch. Tom Bradley, <laughs> or as I call him, the man who didn't waste any time. Tom Bradley was born December 29th, 1917 in Calvert, Texas to a poor sharecropper family. 1917? These people are so old. So old, and they live for so long. And these people, I, I just meant the people we're talking about. As long as they don't surf, they live a really long time. <laughs> Just stay away from the pier. It's a man-eater. <laughs> his parents were sharecroppers, and his grandparents had been slaves. When he was young, the family headed out to Arizona to work on cotton crops, and when Tom was seven, they continued further west to Los Angeles. Hollywood, what? where there's not a cotton... 
here his dad got to work on a railroad where he worked all the live long day. <laughs> that song's about him. His mom was a maid, a maid in LA. Wow, I'm firing off dad jokes. <laughs> the Bradleys had seven children, and sometime after they moved to Los Angeles, Tom's parents split up. The children stayed with their mother. And this, is, this is the Bradley bunch. <laughs> um, so I think one of them died. Is that isn't that the story of the Brady bunch? Like the husband, the original husband and wife are dead. Isn't that the implication? One of them got a divorce, and one of them died. I think. I think his wife died, and then she got a divorce. I, I don't know. Nah. Well, we got to listen to the theme song. His <laughs> wife died. <laughs> She got a divorce. <laughs> no more questions for the rest of the show. Everybody sit down and don't make us uncomfortable. <laughs> Whose daughters are those? No questions. They shouldn't be attracted to each other. Is Robert Reed gay? <laughs> Please, no more questions. <laughs> be a lovely lady. Oh, unrealistic standards. Um, Tom attended Lafayette Junior High and then went to the mostly white Polytechnic High School in San Fernando Valley on Roscoe. Oh my God. I also my re- next person also went to that high school. Oh, really? They're probably friends. He also went to college with another black person who was the first of something. I also read that he attended Los Angeles High School, but I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe for like a little bit. Bradley excelled as an athlete and as an academic. He was the first black president of the Poly Boys League and was the first black... Poly Boys. Poly Boys. <laughs> and was the first black member of the Aphibians, which was an honor society there. On top of that, he played football. He was a captain of the track team and the anchor of the relay team. He also excelled at the long jump and the quarter mile. In 1937, he attended UCLA, the same school as Marion Matthews, but much later, on an athletic scholarship for track. Bradley became the president of the negro club at ucla as well jackie robinson was also he did track oh sorry mother (laughs) he was one of 55 black students at ucla and he was a classmate of his jackie you won't believe (laughs) jackie robinson yeah i know (laughs) i'm well aware (laughs) keep trying to impress me that's nice he was also the first person to create ucla you know that i bet you bradley also joined the prestigious black fraternity kappa alpha psi which was essential in helping him learn how to understand and navigate through the complexities of a predominantly white institution Mm. helped him deal with white people which is hard (laughs) i'm trying right now (laughs) you keep throwing privilege at me and i don't know what to do because I i have it too grab life by the privilege that's what you do. Grab life by the opportunity. <laughs> After his junior year, Bradley left UCLA. Did not graduate, but he left in 1940 to join the LAPD. Why didn't he graduate? Because he wanted to join the LAPD. It's <laughs> weird. Bradley became a police officer while attending Southwestern University for law at night. There weren't many black officers in LAPD at the time, maybe 100 out of 4,000 officers in Los Angeles. He made about $170 a month, which sucks, but yeah. I don't know what the money was Step like. Stephen Fetcher was making more than that. He had his name on the side of his car. <laughs> the most expensive gas. <laughs> My car runs on rhino blood. A gas that they had to clone dinosaurs and then kill them to make <laughs> raptor saliva $170 a month I could see gas God quit $170 a month I could see why cops were crooked <laughs> makes yeah, a lot of sense to me around this time he marries a woman who owns her own beautician shop Ethel May Arnold and begins volunteering for the LA City Council campaign for Edward Roybal who would become a model for Barack Obama you might know him the first black president of the United States and the man again who, and there's nothing before Trump for me Barack Obama is also the man who failed to save us from Donald Trump the man who failed to suspend the laws of the constitution to not let Donald Trump be president a woman in a laundromat told me conspiracy theories and one of them <laughs> was that right before he had to leave, he would create a catastrophe to declare martial law and never leave. <laughs> and little did we know well, two years ago that that was the best scenario. Who would have thought? Certainly did create a catastrophe. <laughs> he forgot the second half of that. I know he went to Palm Springs. <laughs> Sipping on date shakes right <laughs> now. <laughs> Not giving a damn what happens <laughs> well, to you us. you got a date shake with America right now. We need you back. 
take off your sunglasses, take off your Bermuda shorts, let us get a glimpse, and then put on your suit and get back to Washington. Come take all the guns away. You were supposed to take all the guns away. <laughs> back to Edward Roybal, please. Edward Roybal would later be the first Mexican-American to be elected to the U.S. House of Representatives from California in nearly a century. Roybal's strategy came with the support and participation of volunteers and allies across various ethnic backgrounds. Volunteers like Tom Bradley, who would use his strategy later in his career, like Barack Obama would. In the 50s, Tom Bradley moved his family. I'm not sure if it was just him and Ethel at the time or if he had daughters. He had two daughters. I don't know if they went to. They moved into an all-white area at the time, Lamont Park, which is near Crenshaw. In Why order would to... they leave their daughters? No, what I'm saying is when they moved there, I don't know if oh, they if had they daughters had, they at the time. Born, yeah. yeah, They moved to Lament Park, which was all-white at the time, and they did this in order to integrate the community, which worked. In 1956, <laughs> he also passed the California Bar Exam and graduated from Southwestern University. After 20 years serving LAPD, after being the first black man to reach the rank of lieutenant, which is another first of him, he retired from the LAPD in 1961 with the intention of joining a law firm, which he did. After spending time as part of the Democratic group, in 1962, he ran for city council and the next year was elected to city council where he served for eight years until 1969. That's when he first made a pitch to run for mayor of LA against Mayor Sam Yorty. Mayor. Uh, Mayor. I like the sound of that. Mayor Goldie Mayor. Bradley. He was unsuccessful. Yorty's strategy for this was to paint Bradley as a dangerous radical, which doesn't seem like it would make you lose a mayoral race, but this was four years after the Watts riots occurred, so painting mm. a black man as a radical could scare a lot of people in a lot of ways. Sometimes your existence as a person of color is a political or social statement, <laughs> from what I understand, and Yorty used that, bringing up issues of race and your existence as a political statement. Because you're a black man who's trying to gain power after the Watts riots where all this catastrophe Everybody got scared. Everybody got scared. <laughs> so, where was I? You interrupted me with your dumb question. I don't know. You were talking about my eyes. How do they get so dreamy? Why are there so many tattoos on them? On your on your ID, the color of your eyes is dreamy. <laughs> heaven. So, Hair color, heaven. <laughs> you already used... Height. Uh, hubba, hubba. <laughs> height. Just right. <laughs> Gender, who cares? <laughs> you already wanted to paint Bradley as a radical. He kept bringing up issues of race and asserting... Radical. Radical, man. He kept bringing up issues of race and asserting that Bradley was appealing to the black vote and left wing militants. On the flip side, some militant black people denounced Bradley as a white man candidate and referred to him as a Uncle Tom. Hurtful on both sides. We now know there's another name he could call. <laughs> don't, don't call me either, please. <laughs> so Bradley didn't win that election as mayor and he never tried again. <laughs> oh, Oh, wait, what's this? Four years later? No. Oh, my golly. Oh, no. He made a second bid, and he's coming around the bend. He's catching up, <laughs> and he got elected. 1973. Uh, Tom Bradley, Bradley. straight into the city hall. <laughs> Not even neck and neck. Tom Bradley became the first African-American mayor of Los Angeles. He's also the first black mayor of a major American city. Wow. I believe Carl Stokes was elected mayor of Cleveland in 1967, or bigger than Cleveland. Yeah, Cleve- I know Cleveland rocks, but, yeah. they're not major. but they're not big. Yeah, <laughs> They're not radical major tubular. <laughs> many of his backers came from a coalition of West Side liberals, many of whom identified as Jewish, South Side African Americans, Asian Americans, Mexican Americans, labor unions, and downtown business establishments all joined together to vote for Tom Bradley. He accomplished this at a time when the black population of Valley was only about 15% overall, which means his appeal was very broad. He was progressive and soft spoken, and after Yordi, that was a breath of fresh air. By 1973, ah, nice. No one's screaming at me. By 73, the racial paranoia in America was no longer at a fever pitch as riots and a lot of protests were kind of dying down. Yordi's exhausting rhetoric about race didn't work this time, which is how. Bradley was able to succeed. Bradley overall had five terms as mayor. He ran for he was mayor for twenty years from the seventies to the nineties, which was like an area of incredible growth. Yeah. During his second term in nineteen seventy five, the Bradleys moved from their six room Lament Park house to the official house of the mayor of Los Angeles, the Getty House in Hancock Park. The Getty House was donated to the city in nineteen seventy five, so he was the first mayor to live in the Getty House as the mayor. It's a six thousand square foot mansion and it's the mayor's official residence. Bradley is remembered very fondly. He was very non confrontational. He had grand 
grand visions of the city and looked over it through the years at its biggest growth with 70s to the 90s. He was intent on building figurative bridges, not real bridges, mm-hmm. although I'm sure he built real bridges, <laughs> reviving areas such as Watch, which had not recovered from the riots yet. He was lenient on immigration and for years, waves of Hispanic and Asian immigrants were drawn to the city to have opportunities to build families. He built the downtown skyline by cons- hand. Conceptually. He's <laughs> also 4,000 feet tall. <laughs> Did we not mention that? Oh, I forgot to mention this about Tom Bradley. He's Paul Bunyan. <laughs> I was thinking Daniel Boone again. <laughs> the mythical giant Daniel Boone. He's certainly not Daniel Boone. If there's a American folk hero, he is not. It is Daniel Boone. <laughs> he reformed City Hall. He reformed the LAPD. He pumped life back into the financial and business districts. He opened opportunities for high-level jobs and city commissions to women and people of color. He was responsible for enacting environmental reforms for the city, which were crucial for smog pollutions. <laughs> he set ordinances prohibiting discrimination against the LGBT community during the AIDS scare. All these things as Americans, we won't have anymore. <laughs> during his term, LAX was built. The port of LA became the busiest and biggest it- in the country, and the subway system was created. He envisioned Los Angeles as a world-class city, which comes into play in 1984 when... George Orwell wrote... George George Orwell writes a dystopian novel of the same year. (laughs) Quick turnaround. It was January. He was already writing about March. 1984, Los Angeles. He brings the Olympic Games to us for the second time Mm -hmm. and is incredibly successful. Listen to Grand Olympics. This is the title of that episode. Listen to everything. You'll hear it. Just go through every (laughs) two-hour stupid episode. Just give us money. With our vague facts. (laughs) Dot com. (laughs) He knew that Los Angeles wasn't just a series of suburbs. It was a gateway to the Pacific Rim, which he would call it. And it was a thriving, multicultural, multifunctional city. Mr. Bradley said, Los Angeles is a city of hope and opportunity. I am a living example of that. And he really city was. City of hope. She loves me. She loves me. City you of love love me. They love me. Hmm. Paleta, man. You love me. Bacon-wrapped hot dogs. You are my lover. <laughs> His style of mayoring was called Loki, which in comparison to Mayor Yorty, as I said, who was... a big hammer. Mayor Yorty, who was called flamboyant. They gave Bradley a cell phone for his car. A car phone, if anyone remembers those. <laughs> and he didn't use it because he saw it as a waste of money. Keep in mind, growing up, the sign of luxury in LA was that you had a car phone and your mm. car had no roof, which <laughs> the, together is a bad combination. Everyone Can't insisted. Everyone insisted that with ponytails was like, that's how you make it in LA. Then you drive through a street that's just only palm trees on a sunny day and you know you're here. Him and his wife also had permanent seats at Dodger Stadium behind home plate, which is not so humble, but listen, I get it. I want it. I'll do anything for it. Eventually, though, the years of growth would catch up to Bradley. There was almost insurmountable problems built in intrinsically in the city that can't be helped, which a lot of people blame Bradley for. Inviting people to Los Angeles as thriving city resulted in three things. Traffic. Traffic leads to pollution and we also get overdevelopment. People blame these things on him. These were major issues in his later terms and their problems that remain to this day. Uh, what do you mean? There's no traffic? traffic? I never wait in pollution? my life. <gasps> <gasps> <sighs> There's nothing wrong. Overpopulation? There's only two people in this room. What are you talking about? I think you're racist. I think you're a race trainer. The other other day I saw a hillside. There could have been a house there, but it wasn't. We're talking about overdevelopment. There's grass out front. Someone could be living there. It could be a shanty town. In 1989, the newspapers began raising questions about Bradley's personal, financial, and business dealings, which in turn led to the authorities looking into his business. Tom Bradley had been paid as a director or consultant for banks that did business with the city. And as a mayor, you can't have a second job, especially when it has a conflict of interest. Vernon and Bell. He also failed to disclose investments and stock dealings that he had been making. Oh, no. No criminal charges or any evidence of wrongdoing was found, but his image was wounded by this, and it was his spirit. (laughs) He paid $20,000 civil penalty for that. And also his arm. Also, they wanted a piece of his body, a meaty part. Like he, the arm. Like the, uh, he had strong arms. <laughs> Carl Weathers getting his arm chopped off. A predator <laughs> just played in my head, and I got really freaked out by that. <laughs> by the way, that was the first time in a movie that I saw someone's limb come off. As a child, 
terrified <laughs> How's me. How's he going to beat Rocky? How's he going to clap? And then probably the same year I saw Conan the Barbarian and someone gets their head cut off and I thought, well, you can't grow that back. <laughs> and that was growing up in my house. <laughs> Anyways. Well, I guess this is growing up in Greg's house. It's just falling. It's just the sound of swords hitting meat. Body parts. Yeah, flailing around. Tom Bradley had to pay a $20,000 civil penalty fee and he also called, he referred to this as error in judgment by accepting outside employment but he was really wounded by this mm-hmm. and his image was tarnished. Race in these days was also very tense. In 1985 Louis Farrakhan, the minister of the Nation of Islam gave mm-hmm. a very fiery speech which many refer to as wildly anti-Semitic and it strained the relations between the black and Jewish communities of Los Angeles. What? what? <laughs> Farrakhan also said that Bradley bowed to the pressure of the Jewish community and that he also had contempt quote both those things are quotes. Contempt for the truth and contempt for the black people. Bradley had previously chosen not to comment on Farrakhan before the speech, before he gave his speech, but after Farrakhan's speech, he said that the speech contained a strong undercurrent of anti-Semitism and added, I repudiate racism, hatred, violence, and bigotry by whoever utters it. I make no exception. This includes Minister Farrakhan. This leads to the big race thing. If his greatest accomplishment was bringing the 1984 Olympics to Los Angeles, what tarnished his good name would come after the alley riots of 1992 when the white officers involved in the beating of Rodney King were acquitted. He had prided himself on reforming the LAPD, but clearly he was mistaken in this. The city wanted to get rid of the police chief, Daryl Gates, but he had a virtual lifetime tenure granted by the city charter. It seemed like Bradley, the mayor, was helpless to act. He tried to get Gates himself to step down, but this was blocked by the city council. Their relationship, Gates and Bradley's, was so strained that when the rioting first started, it was revealed that two men hadn't spoken in a year. The mayor and the chief of police hadn't spoken in a year. There's no communication between you. The footage of the beating of King and the acquittal kind of broke Bradley. It shattered this hope he had had that a black mayor could end inequality, but it did clearly was not how it happened. At a press conference after the acquittal, he was more blunt than usual. His blunt usual talk. Blunt talk. That's how they... Blunt talk. <laughs> he was more blunt than usual, and he was outraged at the outcome of the trial. He said, Today that the jury asked us to accept the senseless and brutal beating of a helpless man. So for three days, his progressive utopia burned, basically. He eventually regained his composure when the smoke settled and tried to bring the city down to match his calm demeanor. But many critics said he shared the blame for the riots, which in the end saw more than 50 people dead and the property damage approached like a billion dollars. He couldn't prevent the ethnic and racial divide or deal with traffic congestion problem or the threat of real estate overdevelopment. He ran twice for the governor's seat for California. During his first run, he only lost by 1%. If he had won, he would have been the nation's first popularly elected African-American governor, but he didn't win. He ran in a second time, also didn't win in 82 and 86. In 1993, he decided to not run for a sixth term for mayor of LA. Three years later, he suffered a stroke. We, we wouldn't want to get greedy. Three years later, he suffered a stroke, which left him partially paralyzed and unable to speak for the rest of his life. Oh my God. Tom Bradley passed away in 1998 of a heart attack. Tom Bradley, though, is still remembered as a progressive go-getter and a damn fine mayor. And the big biggest man <laughs> the biggest man this town has ever seen you warned me before this that that was going to have a sad ending and uh i think the tears that people are hearing are testament to that i asked a lot of people about tom bradley though just trying to get like i've been trying to find like but everyone's again like, yeah, tom, no, tom bradley was great he was a great mayor mm-hmm. like nobody said a bad thing about tom bradley except for farrakhan except for lewis <laughs> farrakhan who i i learned to stop calling you call him for every episode <laughs> what do you know about oranges jews <laughs> Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. Okay. I, I want to hang up, please. <laughs> my mom makes me talk to my... Lewis wanted to talk to you. No, mom, please, please, please. I'm not here. Greg wants to speak to you. Hold on. Greg? <laughs> ah, damn it. The uh, Jews. He did it again. He did it again. We saved our two biggest names for last, Tom Bradley, and here's my biggest name. Can one man's vision shape the look of a city forever? 
It can if your vision's as bad as mine and accidentally crash into City Hall. That'll change the shape <laughs> of the city. Which is a terrorist threat. <laughs> well, hey, rogue LA Meekly. We can say whatever we want. Enter a man we've touched on repeatedly over the years, oh, but we yeah. never... T- <laughs> okay, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. We're very tired. But we never took the time to look him straight in the face, and boy, did we like what we saw. Paul Revere Williams was born February 18th, 1894, at his parents' house at 842 Santee Street downtown. The English are coming. Okay, that's all I got. <laughs> the English are building. <laughs> His parents were Chester and Lila Williams, and they came to LA from Memphis in 1893 with Paul's older brother Chester Jr. And they opened up a fruit stand at Olvera Street. They were a happy family Yummy. once Paul was born, and then when he was two, his dad died of tuberculosis. Sucks. Then when he was four, his mom died of tuberculosis, and Paul was separated from his brother and put into a foster home <sighs> at 784 East 15th Street to live with a lady named Emily P. Clarkson. And then the orphanage died of tuberculosis. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an orphanage, it's a foster home and it died. died of tuberculosis. <laughs> As a kid, he'd wander around the city picking up tuberculosis. <laughs> he'd just walk around and he'd learn Chinese and German from wow. people he met who lived in his neighborhood. Cool. And he always had a notebook where he would draw the buildings that he saw around town. Oh, nice. He went to Sentius Avenue Grammar School on Pico Boulevard starting in 1900, where he was the only African-American student. Keep in mind that at this time, there were only 3,131 African-Americans in LA. He then went to Polytechnic High School, cool. where he expressed aspirations to become an architect to his guidance counselor, who apparently stared at me with as much astonishment as he would have had I proposed a rocket flight to Mars, <laughs> which will happen. Get him there! <laughs> so the guidance counselor told him, who ever heard of a Negro being an architect? Your oh own people can't afford you and white clients won't hire you. Uh, <laughs> have a nice day! <laughs> what do you really want to do? But hey, graduation's right around the corner, so you should work hard at that. This was You could a- do anything but what you want to do. <laughs> On record, Asshole. This was a turning point in his life where he decided that if I allow the fact that I am Negro to checkmate my will to do now, I will inevitably form the habit of being defeated. He'd only ever heard of one black architect, so he thought that the world could use one or two more. In, Fair. in June 1912, he graduated Polytechnic High School and it was time to build his dream. I don't get it. Dad joke. <laughs> He was mostly studying on his own and joined the Los Angeles Architectural Club and took some night classes at the Los Angeles School of Art and training from the Society of Beaux-Arts Architects starting in 1913. But he wasn't a kid anymore drawing pictures of the Bradbury building in his notebook. He needed money, so he looked through the phone book. I'm just a kid walking around town with a dream (laughs) and tuberculosis (laughs) affecting everybody. He needed money, so he looked through the phone book and made a list of all the architecture companies in town and started going door to door to see who was hiring he was offered a position working for Wilbur D. Cook Jr. who had done the gardens of the Beverly Hills Hotel Mm -hmm. and even though it was an unpaid position he took it in 1913 because that was a pretty big deal they started paying him after a little bit but in 1914 he moved on to the Pasadena based Reginald David Johnson where he was put on the job of designing a luxury home which was the first time he had exposure to that sort of thing that same year he won first prize in a national student competition for his design of a civic center in Pasadena 
1915, he was officially certified as a building contractor so that he could legally make small things. Mm-hmm. In 1916, he decided that he wanted to learn the practical stuff that would go into actually creating the things he was designing. So he entered the architectural engineering program at USC, which had only eight students at the time. In 1917, he started working for Arthur Kelly, who specialized in hotels, residences, and public buildings, and had designed the horniest place on earth, the Playboy Mansion. Horny. Horny was in the air that year, as on June 27, Williams married Della May Givens, who would go on to found the Wifendel Club, which is the oldest social and philanthropic club in LA, African-American that is, Uh, I think. Uh, What are we talking about? (laughs) Together, they would have a son who died as an infant. Tuberculosis. Really? No, I don't know. He died, though. That's funny. They also had two daughters, Marilyn and Norma. He graduated from USC in 1919 and continued apprenticing for Kelly. In 1920, he was appointed to the LA City Planning Commission, on which he served until 1928. 1921, he moves on to the John C. Austin firm, who specialized in large public and commercial projects, such as the Shrine Auditorium and Mm -hmm. the Hollywood Masonic Temple, Mm -hmm. Jimmy Kimmel's studio, Jimmy Kimmel's, Jimmy Kimmel's, which were worked on during his time there, even though he was just a draftsman. But the big thing to happen that year was that he was licensed as an architect by the state of California, making him the first African-American architect west of the Mississippi. Awesome. Which, again, all of Los Angeles was west of the Mississippi. 1922 was another big step forward as he became a member of the Southern California chapter of the American Institute of Architects, but 1923 was really the big year. He moved above just the Southern California chapter Mm -hmm. and became the first African-American member of the American Institute of Architects, which is a pretty big deal. That same year, he also opened up his own firm, Paul R. Williams and Associates in the Stock Exchange building downtown. He was 28 years old and had been living at 784 East 15th Street with his wife and foster mom, but around this time he moved to 1271 West 35th in South Central. This was a good time to open up an architecture business because in the 20s, LA was going through a big boom, real estate boom. Baby go boom. Baby go big boom. (laughs) He started out with small jobs because he wasn't offered much in the early days, but he didn't mind that because he had always wanted to design affordable homes for low-income families. Like, that's what he was... But then he was offered a big project from one of the founders of AAA, Lewis Cast, to design his new home in the new ritzy and still ritzy as ever, Flintridge. The house was a hit and he ended up designing 10 homes there, making it one of the largest concentrations of his work in town. From this, he started getting offered bigger projects like a big public complex in Monrovia in 1924. In 1926, he did a two-story school at 1314 South Dakota, not spelled like you think it is, street in Boyle Heights Mm -hmm. next to Lou Costello Jr. Park which I don't know why that's there (laughs) Abbott Swimming Pool is right next to it hitting it over the head (laughs) spilling water into it (laughs) after being told that the black community would not provide any work for him he proved racism wrong yet again as in 1924 he redid the Second Baptist Church on Central Avenue which was the first African American church in LA he also did the 28th Street YMCA on Central Avenue which was the first YMCA in LA for black men and on the facade of it he put images of Booker T. Washington and Frederick Douglass. That building's on the National Register of Historic Places. Later on, in 1963, he even redid the first African Methodist Episcopal Church in West Adams, which was originally co-founded by Biddy Mason. This was also the church where Williams had gotten married. Outside of the black community, he had a hand in a lot of stuff all over the city. He Mm -hmm. did the Marina Del Rey High School, Uh the L.A. County Courthouse, the Westwood Medical Center, Hillside Memorial Park, the Esso Gas Station at LAX, the Fedco Department Store in Pasadena, 
Pasadena, the Sunset Plaza Apartments, the Pueblo del Rio Housing Project, which became a model for public housing nationwide, Angeles Funeral Home, the Golden State Mutual Life Insurance Building, the Music Corporation of America headquarters, for which he got an award of merit from the SoCal AIA. Mm-hmm. He remodeled the Hollywood YMCA. You might remember he also did part of the Nazi compound Murphy Ranch, which brings us to World War II. During this time, a lot of architecture firms closed down, including Williams, as he devoted his time to helping out the Navy working on a fort in Arizona and the Roosevelt Naval Base and a naval station in Long Beach. They needed all the architecture plans for bullets. <laughs> they melted them down. <laughs> After the war, he was a big proponent of affordable housing for veterans, but some of his most iconic things came after the war as well. He worked on the remodel of the Beverly Hills Hotel in the late 40s doing the Tropical Lobby, the Bungalows, the Polo Lounge, the Fountain Coffee Shop, and even the signage on the front. He did the coffee shop in the Ambassador Hotel, as you might remember. Bang, bang. Bad things happen. He did the interior of... He's a second shooter. (laughs) It was one of those architecture bullets from the war. (laughs) He did the interior of Saks Fifth Avenue in Beverly Hills. He redesigned the Knickerbocker Hotel. He did the Respiratory Center at Rancho Los Amigos. Really? And the Communicable Diseases Building at the LA County General Hospital, making that the first major public building in the city to have been designed by an African-American. Get it. He was also one of the designers of the theme building at LAX, but he wasn't just your everyday public building barrier-breaking architect. (laughs) There's a reason why Polly Williams was known as the architect to the stars, because he was, in fact, our Lord and Savior. Zenu. He created all that there is. He created all that there was. This is Scientology. You've all been listening to a Scientology podcast by Make the Checks Out to Scientology. <laughs> Make it out to Elron Me. <laughs> he designed the homes of many names that might be more familiar to you than the Fedco department store. <laughs> he made homes for people you might have heard of, like Frankie Sinatra, <gasps> Barbara Stanwyck, <gasps> the sinfully cohabitating Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, <gasps> Anthony Quinn, Zsa, Zsa Gabor, Tyrone Power, Bill Bojangles Robinson, founder of CBS, William Paley, Otto Preminger, Lon Chaney, Carrie Ground, Ground, Ground. Carrie Ground, the coffee version of Carrie Grant, (laughs) Dark Roast, Eddie Rochester Anderson, the Cowardly Lion, Bert Lahr, the Cowardly Cuban, Desi Arnaz, (laughs) his cowering wife, Lucille Ball, and his close friend, Danny Thomas. And when that close friend, Danny Thomas, was trying to start a little endeavor of his in Memphis, Paul Williams stepped in and created a design for his St. Jude Research Hospital for Children, completely free of charge. Wow, really? Williams was even the advisor on the 1948 RKO movie Mr. Blanding Builds His Dream House starring Cary Grant, Cary Coffee Grounds. Cary <laughs> <laughs> Coffee Grounds Grant. And the Clampett Mansion on the Beverly Hillbillies was a Williams house. No way. Yeah. Da, 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 da. That, that, That's a fact. That's the Green Acres, by the way. You're Beverly right. Hillbillies is a... Uh, well, here's a little story about the man named Jed. How many 70s TV show theme songs can we... Celebrities were drawn to his style for his designs that had lots of open space, long, curving staircases, and what they described as a casual, elegant a lot like me. <laughs> a long curving staircase. Like a femme fatale. <laughs> he mixed Mediterranean, Spanish revival, and English Tudor styles into something that was its own sort of thing. He was also the pioneer of things like hidden retractable screens and having the patio as part of the house. He was also big on steel homes. I steal homes. <laughs> I'm a squatter. <laughs> he was making these homes in ritzy parts of the city like Hancock Park and Windsor Square, but it wasn't just in LA that he was making stuff. He designed a few buildings in Las Vegas and Reno. Is he Came licensed to work in Nevada, New York, Tennessee, and Washington, D.C., where he co-designed Langston Terrace in 1936, which was the first federally funded public housing project. Damn. But America just wasn't enough for him. He went global, baby. No. Yeah. No. 
Yeah. He did the United Nations building in Paris, a hotel in Colombia, and I'm just making the connection now to his past, a tuberculosis hospital in Ecuador. He cried the entire time. <laughs> it's in the shape of his mother. No. That made me sad. The accolades kept parading in. In 1933, he was appointed to the first ever Los Angeles Housing Commission, on which he served until 1941. That same year, he started serving on the National Board of Municipal Housing and ended up working on commissions under Presidents Coolidge, Roosevelt, and Eisenhower. He was the president of the LA Municipal Art Commission for 11 years. He wrote two books, The Small Home of Tomorrow in 1945 and New Homes for Today in 1946. <laughs> a sequel? He gave advice to architects like, know when to quit because people don't always know what they want. It's the architect's job to help them find it and keep within the bounds of grace. He got USC's Distinguished Alumni Award. He got honorary doctorates from Howard University, Lincoln University, which I think are two of the names from Stephen Fetchett's real name, <laughs> and the Tuskegee Institute. In 1957, he became the AIA's first African-American fellow. This time it is a man fellow. Man fellow. Who's that man fellow that you brought home? <laughs> is he a man or a fellow? <laughs> Both. In 1962, Ebony Magazine listed him as one of the 100 richest African-Americans. And in 1964, Time Magazine named him as one of the most successful African-Americans. I'd rather be the rich one. But don't forget that he was African-American in the early and mid part of the 20th century. And he had to navigate through that. The greatest irony of his life was that many of the houses he designed, he would not have been able to live in because those neighborhoods did not allow black people. His very first luxury home in Flintridge was in a very rich, very white area where black people weren't even allowed to spend the night. Oh my God, they had that, what, what was it? Sundown Lawns? Yeah, Sundown like Lawns, yeah. yeah. Just Flintridge rule. Glendale and Burbank had them. Yeah, but they're closer than Flintridge. <laughs> many clients would come to his office not knowing that he was black, and when they walked in the room, like, oh, uh, uh, this isn't where I parked yeah. my car. <laughs> they would lock up and try to find an excuse to leave as quick as they could. But he believed that people would be tolerant of him once he showed them what he was capable of. Sometimes he was right about that. Sometimes he was wrong about that. Yeah. He didn't want to make his white clients uncomfortable having to sit next to him while he drew up plans. So he taught himself how to draw upside down so that they could sit comfortably across the table from him and not have to sit next, wow. God forbid, sit next to a black man. He'd also walk around construction sites with his hands behind his back so it would be up to the white clients to initiate a handshake if they wanted to and not be put if he stuck his hand out it would be awkward if they're like I don't, don't want to shake your hand such a talented prolific guy had to still accommodate people yeah but he also he had some strange feelings about how it was fine that African Americans were segregated and he supported Nixon in 1960 which mm. is weird but he was still very much active in bettering the Los Angeles African American community he gave to charities and stuff like that he also designed and served as vice president President and director of the Broadway Federal Savings and Loan, who would give out loans to black GIs after World War II when other places wouldn't. This was the oldest African-American savings and loan west of the Mississippi, yet again, before it was destroyed in the 92 riots, along with tons... The Mississippi River was destroyed in the yeah, riots? Just right kicked now. It, they kicked it too much. You didn't know that, Greg? You're dumb. You're dumb. <laughs> you got no smarts in your head. <laughs> it's the Mississippi dirt road now. Yeah. So along with the building being destroyed, tons of his sketches and plans that were inside were like burned. In the July 1937 issue of the American Magazine, he wrote an essay called I Am a Negro, detailing the things he had to go through. And in 1953, he won the Spingarn Medal from the NAACP for urging African-Americans to become active citizens by becoming homeowners. That same year, for 
some reason he and his wife were responsible for tricking the first black contestant onto the set of This Is Your Life because <laughs> they would have like someone would be like oh we're going to get ice cream and then they show up on the set and so, then you throw a bag over their head <laughs> and, and you, you take them to CBS you pour whatever. water on them and say this is your life <laughs> this is your life you don't want to lose it do you give me the plant sidebar terrifying idea for a show to sit there and like this kid that used to stab you in kindergarten he's now sleeping with your wife <laughs> this is your life he retired from architecturing in 1973 and devoted his life to his family he was a really devoted dad and husband and he always considered architecture his hobby oh wow he never brought work home home by the way was in Lafayette Square near Crenshaw and Venice Boulevard mm-hmm. that house is now an LA historic and cultural oh, okay. landmark but when he was home he was home he didn't talk about that he yeah. wasn't talking about the celebrities he met nothing about that he just gave love and attention to his family what's that like I, I'm sorry Greg I'm sorry when I come home I just want to talk about all the celebrities I met that day <laughs> I met William Hung Greg I met William Hung you could see them all pretty often at Philippe's they'd, they'd be going there yeah William Hung he just loved it <laughs> He dips, he dips. They would be at Philippe's often, which may or may not have led to the diabetes that killed him on January 23rd, 1980. Oh, why did you do that at, like at that? At age 85. You didn't hey, prepare me. Uh, well, come on. Sometimes you just crash into a pier. Life happens. <laughs> his funeral was also at the first AME church. His heart crashed into a pier of cholesterol. In I his want o- to quit. In his obituary, they said he not only designed buildings. Paul R. Williams designed lives. Paul R. Williams designed the future and dreams of tomorrow. He's buried at Inglewood Park Cemetery, and he was a level 33 Freemason. So I want to know his secrets. Lizard people. He was buried in the ground and then taken on the other end by the lizard people (laughs) where he was resuscitated. There's um, alternate facts. There's a memorial to him at the Golden State Mutual Building that they put up in 2015. When all was said and done, he had designed some 2,500 buildings, around 2,000 of those in LA. And he did this in a time when LA was just coming into its own and trying to figure out its style. And Williams put forth a look that started to get copied and imitated by other architects and that got spread around the city so a lot of the look of LA is rooted in Paul Williams designs he's been referred to as the Jackie Robinson of architecture you know he went to UCLA (laughs) no (laughs) in December 2016 you know Tom Bradley went there uh, who he was a li- no. He was a li- he, he was, was the li- first barber to be a gumshoe librarian, <laughs> uh, he, a surfer. <laughs> in December 2016, he was awarded the American Institute of Architects Gold Medal, which oh, is wow. the country's highest honor for an architect, and it was the first African American ever to receive that, even though he was dead. He didn't quite blaze as big a trail for African Americans in the world of architecture as he might have hoped, as only 5% of the AIA is currently African American. Mm-hmm. But his impact on the city is clear. His stuff went out of style in the 50s when modernism came in so a lot of stuff got demolished but the homes he did that still exist are revered paul revered williams <laughs> i get it now and they are hard to come by because people that live in them don't want to leave them because they're so nice and yeah. when they do go up for sale they're gone like immediately if you want to know more about him there's the paul r williams project that started in 2006 to spread the knowledge of his story and the aia even has a map of all the major oh, buildings made by black architects in la and if they weren't made by williams himself they were inspired by williams wow that's so, fantastic yeah, that's the city yay now you know everything about the city now go to school somebody at a cocktail party and then be like no you can serve as a mayor for as long as you want <laughs> watch i'll do it do it right now i'm gonna burn it and i'll be a mayor for I like 70 years. Facts.com. 
You know, the LA Weekly website. Then we're going to have to buy the site. I would love it if our official website was (laughs) vaguefacts.com. So yeah, that's the African-American impact on the city. This is our second episode focusing just on... Yeah, I had to re-listen to that episode just to make sure I was getting... Because you you cover like some of the first black and African-American people who were in the city and what they were developing. So I re-listened to that entire episode. It made me want to go to Central Avenue and pretend like it's all going on, which is not. (laughs) That's our entry to Black History Month. It seemed like a lot of the people we talked about really had to be the best to just be the first of something like well, you have to work that much harder yeah. to just break you have that to barrier. be the best and then so good that racist white people have to acknowledge yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's privilege it was very interesting doing research on this especially like doing miri matthews and the incredible resource she has on like black culture and la and stuff could have really helped if i knew that sooner yeah yeah good yeah great 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 okay fine i'll go i'll I'll learn everything good like all the stories were kind of like this is their person's life and this is what they had to suffer through. yeah i know i was trying to like (laughs) it's not that i didn't want to lean on that as much but i also it's part i mean it's it's uh, part of the story story. yeah that's the story they had to break the barrier because there was a barrier that's the thing with with step and fetch it a weird name to say casually but i say his other name then (laughs) there's not enough time (laughs) i was excited like oh the first build black actor and then i started reading the story like oh this is not something to be like proud of <laughs> oh but no i already claimed that i would do it oh no <laughs> it's i already submitted late. the paperwork <laughs> but it's also like that's part of the story black yeah. history that's unfortunately it. that's just part of the story yeah, <laughs> and yeah. It, it shouldn't be ignored you did a very good lead up on segregation at the beaches just because like every little thing was like a bear <laughs> but they like, didn't stop they didn't because the beach is great because that's why we're here <laughs> that's why we're in california what you shouldn't stop doing is opening up that pod podcast oh, app boy. on your phone if you have an iphone leaving a review on itunes for our podcast or just a star rating if you have an iphone just open the podcast app look for us you're logged in just leave a star well yeah. several stars several uh, stars several between, stars. between four to six i don't know as many stars as there are in los angeles she loves me <laughs> stars in the sky meaning two the taco truck you give me food poisoning <laughs> but i love it but i love you i love that i can call in sick the la river you stink like a butt <laughs> I love you. I drown in you. You can follow us on Twitter at LA Meekly. We're on Instagram, LA underscore Meekly. Pictures every day. Like us on Facebook, the main hub, lameekly.tumblr.com. You can send us an email for suggestions. Field trips. Field trips. We still are taking, if you work at a interesting place in the city or something historical. And you you wouldn't mind interviewing us there. We interview them, Greg. No. They don't interview us. No. We have more answers than questions. <laughs> Send us an email. la.meekly at gmail.com. As a reminder, yes. book your tickets to our show, our live show, coming up on February 22nd at the Comedy Central stage at the Hudson Theater. Wednesday, February 22nd at 8 p.m. Reserve tickets online. Check our Facebook or Twitter or Instagram to see the link or go to comedycentralstage.com and you will find it. They are free. You just have to reserve the tickets because seating is limited. It's going to be a live show. We're going to be talking about local commercials from Los Angeles that you probably grew up with. Personalities that you had to sit through on TV. (laughs) And now you're going to have to sit through us. (laughs) Two new personalities. Dad jokes. That's what we're known for, apparently. Um, We have another announcement coming up. It just doesn't stop happening. No, you might see us in person several times this year. I might. You will. We're coming to your house. Unless they don't like us. see you when you're sleeping. (laughs) Thursday, March 9th at 7 p.m., me and Daniel, Ali Mika, will be presenting a talk on the Twilight Zone 
called Between Light and Shadow. It's going to be a talk about the themes of morality in the Twilight Zone. We'll be doing this at the Casa Verdugo Library, which is part of the Glendale Public Library System, at 1151 North Brand Boulevard in Glendale. You can go to glendalelic.org for this. No um, tickets for that, No right? tickets. It's first it's come, free. first serve. It's free. And we'll be talking about the Twilight Zone, which Twilight you and I Zone. love very much. Mm-hmm. So you can also listen to us talking about it That's on This right. Is Red. This Is Red, which is another podcast where we talk about the Twilight Zone. Yeah, we're going to be talking about the show, the meaning of it, and connecting it to Los Angeles also. In some ways. <laughs> in, some, in some ways. In some ways. In some ways. We should do that in Rod Sterling voices the whole time. Talking about a show. We're talking about a show. A show that hurts my voice. <laughs> I lock into a voice and I can't seem to come out of it. I'm a show about a lovely intrigued. lady. <laughs> Robert Reed is gay. Again, for our live show, if there's anybody out there who plays... Uh, Sorry. Trumpet. I don't know. I'm playing the instrument with trumpet. <laughs> you play a French horn. We're looking for a small band to possibly play along with us a couple songs at our request. So if anybody out there listening, hit us up. Let us know, but it might be too late for this live show. But hint, hint, we will be having more live shows in the yeah. future. There's already stuff lined up other than this and the Twilight Zone thing. Yeah. So uh, we would love that. <laughs> we would certainly love that. Uh, <laughs> all that? This is all that. <laughs> the robot now quotes Nickelodeon shows. <laughs> Who likes orange? Uh, Soda. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> Thank everybody. You. Thank Good you night. for listening. Make the checks out to Scientology. <laughs> Make it out to Greg's Trump <laughs> gesture. Thank God you're not here. Hopefully I stop doing oh this. Oh my God. Greg's going to be all trumped out <laughs> coming up for our live show. I'm going to start a small militia at our live show. <laughs> I hope you all brought your weaponry. I hope you all brought your rogue Twitter accounts because we are going to take back this country. Mine's Rogue One. And it's overrated. It's a great film. It's the film that we've been waiting for. It's how everyone thought that Anakin was the chosen one they were waiting for. Look what happened. <laughs> the real one we're waiting for is episode eight. Uh, the Last Jedi? The Return of the Jedi. The Return of the Last Jedi. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll see you, um, yeah, our next episode. It will be the live episode. Yeah, the next episode you're going to hear is the live one. Well, maybe we'll have a little pre-recorded thing beforehand just yeah. to prepare yourself for yeah, it. Please. But yeah, the next time you hear us will be the live one. We hope to see you at the show. So get those tickets we'll be promoting it it's crunch time we want you all there there's 99 seats we're gonna fill every one of them with friends and strangers yeah and 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 trash bags (laughs) and fire (laughs) yeah so we'll see you then and that has been yet another episode of la meekly learning that jackie robinson went to ucla since 2013 bye pals see you later friends (laughs) loved ones loved ones i'm dying (laughs) 